This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Uh, top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day so far. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio, uh, the show where we help you live longer, love stronger, lead healthier, happier lives. That's the, the basic gist of the whole thing. We're going to be your guide, your handbook, right? Uh, the information, the latest, the greatest, stuff you didn't even know you needed to know, plus some, uh, some really cool other insights. Today, by the way, we're going to be talking about the religious left. We always talk about the religious right, those crazy religious right. Are you talking about those who will be left behind? Depends. Okay. How well you <laughs> live your religion. Uh, the religious left would be like the progressives, the liberals that believe in God. In fact, what would Jesus do, that phrase, what would Jesus do you hear all the time? It may not have come from the religious right. You will be amazed when we get into some of the history of the religious left. And yes, there is a religious left. Not everybody that is a liberal is devoid of faith and belief. That's good to know. Isn't that good to know? Yeah. It's really good to know. Heathens. (laughs) Sorry. No, they're just liberal progressives. Oh, You know, I'll have you know, the last time I went to Knott's Berry Farm, which is in Southern California, Southern California known to be very liberal, right? Oh, is it called Knott's Berry? Knott's Berry. I thought it was Nauseous Berry because I get sick every time I go there. It's about right. There was a Christmas program that had all the Peanuts characters in it. Uh They were putting on a Christmas program. A pageant. And one of the characters recited scripture uh, that you know that was surrounding Christ's birth, and after he finished his recitation, everybody erupted in applause. Really, which I was really touched by. At I could Knott's not Berry believe Farm. that this was happening at Knott's Berry Farm. Why? Good for them you just for taking a stand. You don't think that they they believe? Well, no, it's Charles Schultz and he's yeah, I know, but leans that well. But it's lean that way. I mean, this is all part of the peanuts thing too. I love, but peanuts. it's Southern California. Yeah. Speaking well, of heathens. No, these are. Th- I can home, say that home, I, hometown. Here. I can say that because I'm from there. Yeah, you're from there. Yeah, you can get away with that. We're, we'll be talking about the fact that uh, there's believers everywhere, and in fact, many would say I don't believe it. Many would say that a lot of the progressive ideas, like loving people that want to come to America, what is a Christ-like virtue? Hmm. What book are you reading? Like allowing refugees that are dying in other countries to come to America is what God would do. No, it's a progressive idea. So we'll get into religious left today. It's really a fascinating uh, discussion. And let me tell you. Yes. I've been working on this one for a little while. To make this happen. Well, it's it, we'd find someone who wrote something yeah. that is part of it that may have some information to share. And yeah. they're like, nah, that's fine. We don't want to talk. Like, okay. It's like the fourth person, I think, is where... This guy's going to be great. And this guy's great, but it's like there's all these people, and for some reason they're kind of gun-shy, yeah. if you people will, about afraid. going public. So, I don't know. I don't know if well, that's the you, case, you but can that's imagine, what it feels like. Well, yeah. Well, you can imagine this... You, I mean, these are also people that are in the streets making their voice heard. Yeah. But... You know, and we just people just throw them out like you liberal progressive. Maybe, maybe they had like laundry to do this morning. They're just maybe that's it. Yeah, I mean a lot of laundry today. Holy cow! Harvey just continues now making its second landfall. 
Or is it third? Or is it the third? I think it bounced twice. Well, and now CNN's it's heading towards calling Louisiana. it second. Eh, whatever. So whatever, Fake CNN. What do you but do? 11 people have died so far, including a police officer yesterday. Number updated last night. What? 18. No. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. I was thinking, including by the, the way, officer. do you know how many died at, in Katrina? 1,800. Yeah. Holy cow. I mean, this is – so by comparison, uh, it's not – it's 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 – it's probably going to have a, just as much damage, but not as much death, thank heavens. Up to 500,000 cars flooded, they think. I, I did hear someone say – they're saying there's going to be 30,000 people displaced. Yeah. Of a city of four to five million. That doesn't seem like a lot. So – well, no. It seems like a lot. But the, the guy's point was when you watch it on TV, it's like the entire city's flooded. Yeah. But that's not the case if it's 30,000 people displaced and 4 to 5 million in the city. In the city. Well, that's TV. Well, you think maybe TV they should you. show a little perspective also to show yeah. that it's not the entire. I mean, when you watch the, the, the video, oh, it it's like, the entire creation is flooded. There's a lot of cement in Houston. Yes. I heard an interview this morning about right? that. So there might be maybe the cement. I don't know. There's just I don't, when I went there, it just there was so much cement. I was thinking everything is made of cement here. <laughs> it's the first a, thing I thought of when I got off the plane. Like this is a cement capital. Yeah. An urban planner from Texas A&M, an interview with him this morning, he was talking about how you took a swampland, you covered it in cement. <laughs> <laughs> and then you dumped all this water on it. There's oh. no place for it to yeah, go. Yeah, that's the problem. And it doesn't probably absorb, right, because the water table's so high anyway. So, they, As many of these cities, we had someone on from uh, Louisiana, from LSU, after they had their right. floods a couple well, a couple years ago, last year, I think. And he had the same idea. You're building in floodplains, urban sprawl. You're putting things – you're building things right. where they shouldn't be built and, and now they're flooding. <laughs> and then out of cement, so the water just – Just kind of know, – Stays there it's forever. A bad combination. It's, by the way, it's the same thing they build a dam out of. This is true. Mm-hmm. So dams and freeways, all out of cement and cities. Uh, by the way, um, what's going on with Kim Jong Un? What about him? Now apparently his next target Guam. Yeah, back to Guam. See, uh, so- it's, it's his first target though. He's remained focused on his first <laughs> yeah. target, Guam. What did the Guamanese the, ever do? The <laughs> what did they ever the do? The Guamese, I think it is. Is it the Guamese? Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. It's like he didn't learn the lesson. What lesson? I don't know. Okay. I was like, assuming there was a his, lesson. The math lesson from mm-hmm. they'll 12th figure it grade? Out. It's just trigonometry. They'll figure it out. Ah, trig. Don't bring up trig. Uh, and also, uh, we've got a lot to cover. Religious left, of course. Uh, more from the floods. We'll do headlines with Terry South. We'll do empty news, of course, with Jeffrey Liam Simpson. Do get an update, by the way, on Jeffrey's um, diet. He may have hit a, 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 a big moment. He may have kale. Yeah, no. it's he cheaper made, at Whole Foods kale now. Chips I don't touch now. the stuff. All right, I'm just saying it's cheaper at Whole Foods now. Amazon it's, it's dropped the price. It's actually cheaper at the Sizzler. Buffet. It's right there in between the tomatoes. And the, it. yeah. It's cheaper at Whole Foods, but you don't get it for two days. Oh, that was an Amazon joke. Yeah. That was funny. No. Man, I want a laugh track button. Do you? Do you yeah. like that? I think people would think I'm funnier. Mm. Mm, doubt it. Okay. Wrong. Yep.
Sorry, Mr. Trump. We'll get to all of that straight ahead. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's Speaking up? Speaking of Mr. Trump, uh, this, this article reads, What's in a name? President Trump pondered Tuesday as he visited Texas in the aftermath of Tropical Storm Harvey. Harvey sounds like such an innocent name, Ben, right? Trump talking to Housing and Urban <laughs> Development Secretary Ben Carson. Ben! But it's not innocent. Trump also called the deadly storm no angel. At another point, Trump noted that probably there has never been something so expensive in our country's history as the flooding in Texas, which has left an estimated 30,000 people displaced. He, uh, the sad thing is that this is long-term. No, one ever, no one's ever seen anything this long, and nobody's ever seen this much water, Trump said, regarding the flooding of the Ele- Houston area. Eloquent. Trump- Trump report. This is hard to read. It's maybe someday. It's hard to listen to. It's maybe someday going to disappear. We'll keep waiting. Trump remarked uh, on how FEMA uh, administrator Brock Long has quote has become very famous on television in the last couple of days and reassured Texas Governor Greg Abbott that they could congratulate each other when it's all finished. Okay. Uh, let me just say something. <sighs> okay. Oh, and then he, and he I also. Just, I he read also, the president's words. He also commented. The deal is, he can't win, right? Because everyone's going to make fun of him. But he made comments about, um, "Wow, look at the crowds! Crowds are churning out." Yep. Well, yeah, they're all flooded out victims. <laughs> no, <laughs> they have nowhere to go. What crowds were turning out? That was the question of some uh, writers that were yeah. following the president, some reporters. They're like, they found it interesting that no one knew where the president was, but then all of a sudden there's like all these people oh, out front. so they're leaking so they're his like, location. Well, where they, they organized a crowd so he could stand up on the car with the Texas flag and get some cheers. When hmm. he should be hugging victims and holding them saying, yeah. I've got you, I've got your back. Well, he has a personal bubble. Yeah. Okay, just wanted to clarify. So it was a it was a photo op they set up so that. Well, and by the way, if that's true, then you're setting up a photo op in the middle of a disaster zone. Well, it was north of the disaster zone. Okay, north of the disaster. Yeah, Yeah. but wasn't everybody supposed to just stay home? I think that was the the mayor said. Well, in Houston. Yeah, in they weren't in Houston. They were they were were in Corpus Christi. They uh, were in Austin. He didn't meet any victims. Oh, I thought. Oh, I thought he went down to the area. No, no, no. He never went to any area that was flooded. Okay. He went close to it. What water was he talking about then? Well, I mean, there's water. You know, he sees them. He on TV. saw it on the video. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Makes Speaking sense. of tropical storm, Harvey dropped 51 inches of rain in Cedar Bayou, Texas, a new oh. continental U.S. record. The National Weather Service announced Tuesday. Houston and surrounding areas are experiencing severe flooding. As we know, the rainfall has slowed since the storm first made landfall. Two dams and a levee began overflowing on Tuesday, adding more to the rising water. Harvey's expected to make its second landfall Wednesday morning, possibly in southwestern Louisiana, Mm. which it did. And it's going to just cruise right on through, possibly, and then turn into a depression storm. And, you know, it'll be in Ohio later in the week, and they'll get a little bit of rain out of it. Boy, it's like when you're... You just can't get your sprinklers to turn off. That's right. It's exactly like that. No, not And not you're close. running around. Just, <laughs> I can't close. get my not sprinklers off. How many inches have they dropped? 50 inches. And you flooded your neighbor. As we talked about earlier, uh, North Korea. Yeah. They're, they're up there uh, being provocators, I guess you could call it. Provocateurs. provocateurs. I like provocateurs. Yeah, I love Don't get me ketchup wrong. Ketchup or fry sauce. The, yeah. the foreign ministers of Russia and the United Arab Emirates held a joint press conference and told North Korea to knock it off. Go ahead and follow what the uh, United Nations has said and knock it off. That's kind of what they both said. Okay, yeah. you know what? It's got to be bigger than that. Yeah, I know. But, and what's somebody's funny, can you add say, a please in there? Please knock no, it off. No, somebody's got to say 
if I have to pull over, <laughs> you're all going to be hating this. The UA foreign minister left out the part where they have a bunch of North Korean citizens in their country working, shipping money back to North Korea, kind of helping to their economy. The, and, yeah, 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 yeah. So they left that part out. But yeah, they said the missile launch carried out on Tuesday is meant as a prelude to military actions against Guam. Another good one. They're practicing. I don't care who started it. I'm finishing it. Yeah. Yeah. Or I'm ending it. Jeez. And finally, on a completely <laughs> different note, as a marriage counselor, yeah. I need your opinion okay, of this program what? to help families. Okay. And stop terrorism. Okay. So two, let me write that down. No. It's, it's two uh, birds, one it's, stone. Uh, to help families, families and stop terrorism. Stop terrorism. Okay, good. Authorities in Russia's Chechnyan Republic are claiming success in an unconventional sweeping campaign to compel people who have divorced to reunite for the sake of children and, they say, to help fight terrorism. Mm. Uh, through the summer, local t- uh, television has been reporting on the lives of divorced couples now living together, again under the watchful eye of members of a government commission. It's a reality TV Chechen style. Right, that's what they're saying. The commission known as the Chechen The commission known as the Council The Council for Harmonizing Marriage and Family Relations says it has over the past two months brought back together nine hundred forty eight couples. Oh, that's great. Some after years of separation. Under the program, the council can ask the police to visit divorced people to encourage them to patch up their differences. So the police show up, and we really encourage you. You will patch up your differences. The broadcast show formerly divorced people going about their lives in a now common home, mostly avoiding one another, but also spending time with the kids. Hmm. One mother helped with homework. Another was shown putting a hat on a child's head as he played in the sun, you know, taking care of the kids. However, uh, farcical on the surface, the program is, with all social policy in Chechnya, lethally serious. Failure to comply with the demands of the relig- uh, regional leadership can have severe consequences far worse than living with a despised former partner. Interesting. So, And, and it stops terrorism how? Be, I think what they're thinking – the idea is that the stable home, you don't get disgruntled children. They oh, don't grow up to blow okay. things up. I was thinking more it's like, hey, look, we're already miserable. You don't need to come here. <laughs> no, they they tend to send out the terrorists. That's that's a from you that know region. what? Maybe we all need to be more heavy-handed like that. Maybe there needs to be a big tax on divorce. Does the government come back and say, "No, you're together. We yeah. know you don't like each other, but you're together." Yeah. Sorry, this actually feels really good for us <laughs> to keep you two together, so make it work. Hmm. Well, see, by the way, it, you know, that's the difference, right? So I think 60% of marriages worldwide are arranged. Mm, really? Yeah. Wow. 60%. Yeah, like, I mean, India, oh, China, yeah, Middle okay. East. All right. Got you and they actually so are happier. Yeah. They rate their marriages as happier than us, our Western marriages. Huh. And they have a lower divorce rate because, you know, you'll be stoned. Do they have Netflix? And then I'm Netflix. My marriage is pretty happy with Netflix. Yeah. So is your wife. Yeah. She's like, wow, I don't even have to acknowledge <laughs> he's, he's like, alive. <laughs> he can just watch his superhero movies and I'm great. Yeah. Yeah. I. That's kind of weird though. Yeah. That's kind of an odd program. Chech, Chechnya seems pretty intense. A little bit. But they have a lot of rebels. Yeah. Chechnyan rebels. They do. Air quotes. They, right they'd there. like to not be part of Russia anymore, but Russia, they don't agree. Yeah. Causes conflict. Yeah, you're going to be part of us one way or another. Hmm. Ah, I don't know. What are you going to do? 
Jeff, what are you going to do, for heaven's sakes? A quick update on Jeff's weight loss program. Oh, yes. What, uh, what's the news, Jeffrey? So I have passed the goal weight of the first game that I've been a part of. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, the audience loves your goal weight. And so just so that it didn't get any further below what it's supposed to be without me continuing to make progress, I joined another game. So I'm, now really? I'm in two games. Now you're in two games at $30 a game. Yes. You're about to cash in on the first in about a week. Yeah. And then uh, you'll have to somehow adapt your game, right? Because you're not going to lose. You're going to have to add exercise. You're going to have to add exercise now. This is exciting. <sighs> you look fantastic. And then if I continue, if I hit the mark early on this next game, I'm going to try to join another one before my brother's weekend before it all goes to pot. Yeah, because that's where it's all going to fall <laughs> apart. That's where the whole thing comes unraveled. Hmm. Well, because ha- I'm the youngest of – there are four boys and my dad. They all love donuts. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure we'll, they'll want to go to get donuts every morning. Oh, We're going to go to a Dodgers game, so I'll get some nachos. Yeah. Assuming they get to the playoffs, that is. Maybe you ought to just not go to the brothers thing. It sounds like they're going to be <laughs> tempting you. Hey, I can handle it. That's right. And plus, families are great. Maybe you guys will get in a really big fight and no one will want to talk and you'll just sit there and not eat or anything. If I can watch my wife eat dessert every weekend or so, I won't say how frequently it is, and not have any myself, then I'm in a good place. You can handle this. Oh, I got it. Plus, by the way, I love the suspenders. (laughs) I need them. I need them. Yeah, something's got to hold those pants up, those shorts. Those are neat shorts too. They're kind of short shorts, though, aren't they? They're not too short. I don't know. John Stockton called. Wants his shorts back. It's a little Utah jazz joke right there. Hey, sit down! Sit down! Sorry. Every once in a while, we lose the audience here in the studio. Okay, up next, we are going to introduce you to what you may not even believe exists, the religious left. There's, a, there's an incredible history of religious faithful um, believers that, uh, that are really have become a big part of a, the progressive movement here in the United States. Uh, interesting insight straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Religion has always played a huge role in shaping the America that we know today and in shaping and promoting social and political reform from the founding of our country to the abolitionist movement and the civil rights movement. Religious leaders have taken the lead in progressive causes here to speak with us today uh, about the religious left is Christopher H. Evans. He's a professor of history of Christianity at Boston University. Uh, Christopher, thank you so much for being with us today. It's great to be on the program, Matt. Thank you. What, a, what an interesting topic. We always hear about the religious right, and it seems like everybody believes that, uh, that you know, there's no such thing as a religious left, that they don't, you know, they're not, there's not a faith system on the left side. But talk to us about the history of, uh, of the left and the progressive and religious left. 
Well, I, I think you've, you've made a very good point, Matt, that for many Americans, I think the only type of activism that they associate with religion tends to be associated today with, with what is oftentimes called the Christian right. But as you mentioned at the outset, the, the history of America has always been filled with religious-based activism. And going back before the Civil War to uh, the involvement, particularly of evangelical Protestants in the abolitionist movement, uh, continuing into the late 19th century with, with many different groups, uh, being very active in, in women's rights, uh, various forms related to the temperance movement. And then moving into the 20th century, you have a, a lengthy tradition of activism pertaining to uh, issues of economic justice and probably most well known to, to many people, the, the, the kind of faith-based activism that you see during the civil rights movement in, in the 1950s and 1960s associated with leaders like Martin Luther King Jr. It really what a, I mean, it's a very very rich history and um, in uh, your article how the social gospel movement explains the roots of today's religious les- left explain to us what so- what the social gospel movement was Well the social gospel is a term that that became very common in the early 20th century but it it really refers to the idea that when you talk about religion, and particularly coming out of different traditions of Christianity, that that the focal point of religion needs to be based in some meaningful acts of social reform. Now, historically, uh, Christianity, I think, has always been involved in different ways of, of alleviating suffering and having a concern for the alleviation of poverty and and creating societies that are predicated on on various models of justice but i think what was different about the social gospel matt is the the emphasis moved away from sort of the idea that that faith is only about the individual to the idea that that uh, salvation in various ways needed to be defined around the reform of society. So the term that became associated with the social gospel that I mentioned in the article is this idea of social salvation. The 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 this is an idea that really gets to the idea that that religion needs needs to move beyond simply an individual soul but be involved in alleviating poverty, alleviating inequalities, uh, being concerned about racial justice. Uh, I've always been drawn, and I think maybe the best quote that summarizes this idea was by Martin Luther King, who really defined the, when he talked about a social gospel, he, he made the comment that religion that only is interested in or concerned about the souls of individual, but is not concerned about the social conditions that scar the soul is, is really a, mm. a spiritually moribund religion only waiting for the day to be buried. Mm. So the social gospel took the, took the idea that, that religion 
needed to to take on the, the the social inequalities of America. So really, when you look particularly at the late 19th century, at a time of massive industrialization, uh, uh, cities were teeming with immigrants. This was a, a time when, when cit- cities in the United States were doubling, tripling in size very rapidly within a couple of decades. The, the social gospel focused on, on the idea that, that Christians and other people of faith needed to be involved not just in alleviating uh, suffering or, or not just in acts of charity, but needed to take on activist roles that would be responsible for uh, eliminating poverty, working for legislation that would protect workers' rights, uh, be involved in efforts of civil rights, uh, uh, particularly when you look at the struggles of African Americans in the 19th and 20th century, uh, later on being involved in issues of environmental justice, uh, I think the social gospel started off being used as a very specific term to, that focused only on economic justice or really tended to be focused on the kind of specific conditions of urban America in the late 19th century. But it's a term that has become, I think, today, Matt, much more expansive in its use. Do you see it? Has it has it um, has it morphed from uh, the left to well, no, I guess as even I ask it to the right, because it seems like um, the the left believers are are more about like social justice, social inequality. Um, how would you parallel the right's religious approach? Well, I I think the interesting thing is Matt that both the left and the right, and I th- and, and focusing for just a minute on developments within within Christianity. Both the left and the right would probably say that they are followers of the religion of Jesus. Um, again, when you look at sort of the development of the social gospel, it, it came out of this idea that I point to in the article of how does one be follow the religion of Jesus. And in the late 1890s, a congregational minister named Charles Sheldon wrote an immensely popular bestseller, called In His Steps. And this was a book that introduced the slogan, What Would Jesus Do? Mm. Now, the interesting thing is that slogan became very popular later in the 20th century among many conservative evangelicals right. who, who really saw this as kind of a way in which an individual should live a, a righteous life. That, that that to be a follower of Jesus, one needed to walk literally in Christ's footsteps. I, th- I think the difference between the left and the right, well, there are many differences, but I, I think when, when you look at the way that that slogan developed among people that would be associated with the Christian left or the religious left today, this tended to be uh, translated into more progressive political causes. So, for example, when you when you look at um, the the way that that slogan has translated into uh, a, a desire for alleviating poverty, uh, many people who originally read Sheldon's words were were taken by the idea. Well, Jesus is in solidarity with the poor. He talks about in in the Gospels that that. Uh, 
that that there are certain inherent problems with wealth and and what is required is the the way that Christians look to the alleviation of certain certain inequalities. So in the early 20th century, this really translated with many people on the left into efforts to, for example, eliminate uh, eliminate certain working conditions, to pass legislation that would restrict workers' hours, which would would provide basic support to, uh, for example, the American labor movement. And, and in many ways, again, the idea of Jesus as a champion of the poor and oppressed really caught on. Um, now, again, I think for people who are associated with the Christian right, they would say, they would argue that they take Jesus's teachings very seriously. But but that that translates, I think, more into the idea of uh, of personal morality. Mm-hmm. It doesn't necessarily cross over into the desire to advocate for legislation. the The other thing, again, Matt, and this is maybe a conversation for another program. The 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 religious right, I think, or the Christian right, has has really. Um, campaigned, I think, on the idea that America is fundamentally a Christian nation, that, or I should say a Christian Protestant nation, that it's predicated on certain values that they understand to be uh, endemic to uh, a certain understanding of, of Christianity and Protestantism in particular. And, and I think when you look at the history of the Christian right, I mean, going back to people like Jerry Falwell, in the 80s and Ralph Reed uh, in more recent times, there is this understanding that faith is about uh, sort of making and reclaiming uh, uh, America as a as a Christian nation. And part of that, I think, has been uh, that 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 is translated into a support, for example, of free enterprise economics. It's translated into, uh, I think, a lengthy support. Uh, for the Republican Party that uh, many scholars have have illustrated, and again, very very different from the politics of the religious left, which I think has has really taken on uh, not just the idea of of redistributive economics and civil rights, but but I think part of what you see, particularly during the t- the 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 Trump administration right now, one of the things that the religious left has campaigned on and advocated very strongly is that America is a religiously and culturally pluralistic society. Mm. Uh, And this is evident, I think, again, when you look at many of the different coalitions of religious leaders that have emerged that are associated with the religious left. And 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 again, quite frankly, very different from the the relative homogeneity that you see of the from the from the right, which is predominantly uh, predominantly white and uh, very strongly based on, uh, in many ways, a a, a kind of uh, distinctive uh, sense of its own mission. Yeah, boy. Christopher, so enlightening when I think about how we um, – how at the root of our own uh, Republican or Democratic views may be this uh, – these seeds of our religious uh, philosophy. 
We will continue the discussion more with uh, Professor Christopher Evans, um, again, a professor of history of Christianity at Boston University. And today we're talking about the religious left. Many, again, didn't even know that it exists. Of course it exists. There's believers everywhere. And uh, how over history and over time um, our religious views may have turned the left to be more socially uh, conscientious spiritually and, and direct it to the social uh, institutions, and on the right, maybe more personally um, spiritually focused. So an interesting little uh, dichotomy there. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. Welcome back, friends, to the, to the Matt Townsend Show, uh, joined today by Christopher H. Evans, who is a professor of history of Christianity at Boston University. His work specializes in the history of American Protestantism, emphasizing the relationship between Christianity and social reform in U.S. history. Christopher, thank you again for your time and for being with us. Oh, thank you, Matt. This uh, One of the things that you've, I think, really shined a light on is the I mean, there's incredibly deep-seated uh, paradigms and views of th- that are that are in our in our political process of um, Republicans and Democrats. I mean, you could. There's a huge concept of do we do we prove and test our virtue through society or do I have to master it? And is it about personal spiritual growth? Um, is I mean, this this is it's crazy, but in in kind of the root of it all, a lot of our tension and uh, discord might be coming from this religious battle. Absolutely. Uh, a few years ago, uh, Robert Putnam uh, co-authored a book called American Greats: How Religion Unites and Divides Us. And and I think when you look at even the use of categories, Matt, like religious left and right. religious right, reflect this kind of polarization. Um, I think in a lot of ways, uh, it, this is perhaps nothing new in American history, that, that people will always say in kind of have fun, whole earnest, that uh, you should never talk about politics and religion. Yeah. In, in in any kind of conversation because it, it will create tension and conflict. But I think, again, our, our religious traditions tell us a lot about who we are as Americans, both in a positive and perhaps not so positive way. And, and I guess in reality, uh, we could have both, right? I mean, we should have personal virtue and social regard. <laughs> Oh, a- absolutely, and and I think when you look at the the religious left today, and just focusing on that uh, as an example, I, I think one of the things that that is attractive to to many people about it is is and that, and the, and this is certainly true, I think, with younger Americans that that the potential, I think, of the religious left is that it offers certain Americans an opportunity to become involved. And, and 
one dimension of that, certainly, and, and this is the most uh, media visible aspect of it, the, with, with a lot of the demonstrations and protest marches. And when you look at certainly what happened in, in Charlottesville a few weeks ago, uh, many uh, religious leaders from different traditions were, were very visible in, in standing up to the, the Nazi, neo-Nazi protests. But another dimension of that, I think, Matt, is is that uh, when you look at congregations in the United States, uh, I think a number of younger Americans are looking for opportunities to become involved. And on one hand, this may mean being in, connected with protests, but it could range from working in soup kitchens to uh, working for organizations like Habitat for, for Humanity. There, there are so many different examples of this, but I think the 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 impulse uh, to do good is is very very strong in the, in the U.S. To, right now. And yeah, and so do you see uh, that the um, that the impulse, like kind of with the millennials, we always kind of talk about the millennials. Do you, that they are they more drawn? Do you sense to a liberal or a religious left um, than a religious right? Well, I mean, youth, I, youth I think, tend to be more progressive, it seems like, anyway. I, I do uh, uh, have a strong affinity for that uh, tradition, Matt, the truth be told. But, but I do think, again, that, that one of the things that you see happening in America right now, and, and it'll be interesting 30 years from now to see whether or not uh, commentators like me are, are accurate about this, but, but a lot of demographic studies that have been done on millennials really point to the ideas and the sense that they're, they're tired about debates over matters like doctrine, uh, the, the, the kind of perceived legalistic nature of certain religious traditions. And, and I think this carries over into a wide spectrum of traditions. I mean, for example, young people who are attracted to churches are, are not joining churches because they want to be on uh, the finance committee or the board of <laughs> trustees right. or, or, or another. They, they don't want to just simply be there to reinforce the institution and preserve the institution. They want to feel like their lives are making a difference in the world. And, and, and I think part of the, the challenge that the left faces, the religious left, is not just from people, say, on the, on the other side who represent the Christian right, but it comes from other people on the left who, who frankly don't see any good in religion today. Mm. Uh, this is part of the sobering challenge. I, I point out in, in the article that you referenced that about 30, only about 30 percent of Americans see religion as as uh, having uh, a positive role to the larger public good. I mean, that's that's a tremendous drop from uh, from previous demographics, particularly when you go back to, around a generation ago. So, so part of that. On one hand, there's this tremendous tradition in America where religion has been a, a, a source of so much social good in the United States. Uh, whether it's personal uplift, whether it's been related to a, a lengthy history of social reform, 
but but that idea of in some way of Karl Marx religion is the opiate of the people still uh, still lingers I think hmm. and and I think that for for many people who uh, one of the challenges that I think the left faces today the religious left is how does it get its message across not not just on a on a sort of national stage but within the context of the work. Uh, in its effort to mobilize on a grassroots level. I wonder, um, Christopher, and I think you'd you'd be the person to ask of all people, if um, our movement – so to, to move the social gospel um, into the political arena, does it – by being in the political arena, does it actually kind of build a wall between our faith belief system um, and the polit- and the politics of it? So that we have a harder time, like, connecting to our faith. Because it almost seems like whether it's the right fighting for their view or the left, uh, religious left fighting for their view, the minute it becomes kind of a political issue, nobody seems godly or Christ-like. Does that make sense? I think you make a very good point. I, I think that, again, the, the part of the way in which so many people become turned off to religion, I, and I think this is probably true of the left, and certainly I think there's a lot of evidence to support this with, with, the, with the right, is when, when it puts politics ahead of faith. Mm. I think the power, though, of when you look at people like Martin Luther King, and I think he is the perfect example, yeah. and there are many others, and and the article that you reference uh, brings this out. But but King embodied, I think, in the in in America, the idea that that issues related to social justice, whether it's race, whether it's taking on issues of the class divide, are fundamentally questions of faith. They're not questions of politics. King very famously noted that one of the most segregated uh, hours on Sunday morning uh, uh, is is when churches are are gathering, hmm. and and this is still, I think, a problem in many respects. The whether it's race, whether it's social class. Uh, whether it's particular beliefs, uh, religion, again, can be uh, a place of great division. But, but I think also, and I think this is part of the hopeful message that comes from different quarters of the religious left, is that religion can, can also bring us together. Uh, it, it can be a means for, for not just people within a particular faith community to gather, but it can be a window to reaching out to the to the world, and and I think particularly since uh, 9/11, uh, many different communities, uh, whether they're Christian, uh, Muslim, Jewish, uh, have been have felt that sense of of a need to reach out to one's neighbor, to uh, to see their congregations as a larger window to the world. Uh, and and I think, again, that sort of legacy of justice is is something that that does define the religious left in a very uh, positive way. The idea of loving your neighbor, uh, again, that comes out of sort of this idea of, of Jesus's ethical teachings from the 19th century has really taken on a new meaning today. Who is my neighbor? Mm. 
and and for for many people of faith today, that is a fundamental question that is not about politics, but is fundamentally about how one wants to live their lives. True. So profound, Christopher. We appreciate you and your great work. The book is The Social Gospel in American Religion, A History by Christopher H. Evans. Again, Christopher is a professor of history of Christianity at Boston University and uh, just bringing it all together. We, we can believe in the social gospel. We can work to grow society and simultaneously strengthen our own personal uh, spirituality and virtue. Both can coexist. I mean, when you think about it, religious right, religious left, they shouldn't be divided if they believe on in the same deity, right? Let's just do as, as, as he did. Love one another. Love our neighbor. Love ourself. And a lot of our problems would, uh, would go away. We appreciate it. We'll continue the journey uh, right after this uh, message and this break. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can on the program to help you be the good in the world. And uh, we're at it again, folks. Again, how how perfect is an interview about religious right, religious left when we see what's happening in Houston right now? When it, when it comes down to it, you know, it's not the GOP and the Democrats that are going in to save people's lives. It's just average folks, right? Believers and um, and even non-believers, just people that are willing willing to put their lose themselves to go help someone else. That's all that's happening. But then we are going to experience this moment and then fight about it politically for the next ten years. What? So what party was the mayor from uh, of uh, Houston, and what party was the governor from, and why didn't the president do? <sighs> Really, when it comes down to it, if you're going to say we want to make the world better, you're following some virtue, right? You're following some ethic, and it's probably a real character ethic. You want to help make the world better. Well, then make it better by trolling less, complaining less, and doing more. Make it better by serving more, shutting your mouth. (laughs) I mean, I guess it's okay to keep talking, but at some point, what makes the talk so powerful— is action, movement, doing something. As soon as you've gone out and served the community, uh, you know, thousands of hours, then open your mouth about how the community should work. And that's what you. That's why there's so much power in kind of these leaders that are on the ground, that are on the front uh, row um, of a lot of these issues. They've spent so much time in the issue. Then we trust what they're saying. Don't try to just assert your rights. Because you have rights, that's great. But you also have to earn rights and you have to earn credibility and you have to earn moral authority. And that comes by being what you say you want to be. Anyway, just a little idea. Continue the journey. Our prayers go out again with those uh, suffering through uh, Hurricane Harvey. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead a healthier, happier life right here on BYU Radio.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Up and at them. Time to uh, get back at it, folks. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on uh, BYU Radio on Sirius XM 143. Why do we have to bring Adam into this? Um, your hearing is not very good. Is hmm? it? Is it? <laughs> Did you just say, hmm? Huh? Welcome to the program, folks. Uh, got a great show for you today. We've, we will be talking about the myth of the ADHD child. Is it a myth or is it a reality as we get back to school you may already be hearing uh, feedback from your teacher that your child just doesn't focus. He just can't sit still. I better not be hearing that after the first day of school. Oh, yeah. she called. Give them a chance. Give them a chance. They just have to get the wiggles out. It's not a big deal. Every day I'm like, so, my boy, what's your favorite time at school? First grade, what's your favorite thing you did today? He goes, lunch. I know. That's it. Or recess. But I, it's a good kid. That's what my 22-year-old says about, about BYU. Right. He likes what recess. What do you love most about BYU? The walk in between classes. Yeah. Love that. Because I can put in my headphones and unplug mm-hmm. from the world. And escape, yes. I do that every day. It's been really warm lately. I'm not liking my walks because I have to take my shirt off and just walk around campus without my shirt on. I, I think everyone else isn't enjoying that either. So, In fact, I had security following me for like two blocks last uh, yesterday. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's because they like what they saw. Yeah, because I'm ripped. Speaking of hot, it is stifling in here. I know. No, it's just because you're wearing flannel. Yeah, too much clothes. <sighs> you know the rule, no flannel still before August. September. <laughs> really? Yeah. Is that? Okay. That's, I didn't know that was You're the not rule. from Utah. That's the desert or, rule. Or is it hot flashes? What's he... He might be going through that is change. It, is it the change? Or it might just simply be, be that he's losing so much body weight that his body's trying oh. to adjust its temperatures now. So it's some sort of inflammation that's happening. You would think I would mm-hmm. be colder if I was losing more weight. You would think that, wouldn't you? I, yeah. Yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. As a doctor, no. That's not how it works. Anywho, boy, uh, crazy stuff. Uh, again, a second, uh, what are they calling it? Um, landfall. Landfall. Now uh, Louisiana is going to be involved in this one. And luckily they moved the BYU football game from Houston to New Orleans. Right. And maybe in the end. Well, New Orleans, apparently New Orleans is on the eastern part of Louisiana. And this is hitting the western part of Louisiana. So they might be all right. Kind of like this hit the uh, Houston part of Texas and eventually made it all the way over to Louisiana part. Right. So. We'll see what happens. I mean, hey. If not, you just move it to Tallahassee. You just keep moving no, no, the game. No, it's, it's indoors. It's fine. Then you move. Eventually, BYU will be playing Louisiana or LSU at, in, in the Florida Keys. Oh, really? Uh, just keep been, put Bahamas? Mm-hmm. Have you been to the Florida Keys? No, have Amazing not. place. That is – that's the Garden of Eden. Really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Strong recommendation there. Yeah. Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. Florida Keys are incredible. Is, it a, bridges, is it a land that bridge, time forgot? Or bridge no? Island, Bridge oh, Island, well, Bridge Island. A lot of cement. Bridge Island, Bridge yeah. Island. Right. I don't know how many bridges there. Right. It's really cool. Ah, I'd go to a game there. Um, we've got a lot to talk about today. 
uh, not just Houston, and the lives uh, now, I think it's up to 18 souls mm-hmm. have passed um, in that tragedy, including a police officer that drowned trying to get to work. And uh, very moving. Up to 49 inches have been counted in uh, in that area. Un- it's just it just never ends. Dams on the verge of breaking. The city stressed to the limit. Thirty thousand people uh, uprooted. Nowhere to go. Not to mention all the uh, industrial plants around and what's leaking out of them. That's becoming uh. a concern now. Uh, somebody else I was reading was talking about the mosquito holocaust it will cause. This will uh, this will be this is where all they the said after Katrina it was was very not it was very common to have o- over a hundred mosquitoes on you Oy. because you know standing water brings yeah. mosquitoes mm-hmm. and that's all this is so it'll just be and then there's a Zika concern because Boy. of this so <laughs> it's just it just impacts uh, upon impact when it comes yeah. to the problems it's just not fair. But it never is. You see these pictures of families. I mean, being, imagine being a single mom with three kids mm. and you've got to get your family out and your car's underwater. 500,000 vehicles, they're saying, up to 500,000 cars could be out of commission. Which, by the way, a little advice, I wouldn't buy a, a car now for the next 10 years Unless you've done a background, like a Carfax search or whatever. Something like that. Look at the background of the car. Where did it come from? If Houston's involved. Yeah. eh. If there seems to be a water line uh, right above your seatbelt. Yeah. If they uh, say that's like a detail of the the styling of the car. No, 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 no. Right. If you have – if you find twigs and sticks in your back seat or under your seat, I wouldn't buy that car. There was this video in a Houston driveway. This guy had ants. Crawling Ooh, across his, his dash of his car. They had crawled into his car to get away from the water, and they're just running across the dashboard. Oh. Hanging out in his car. You're like, oh, <laughs> no, not happening. Crazy. At that point, I I step out. I get a source of fire. Oh, hold on. <laughs> and we burn a source it. of fire. Okay. A source of fire. Yeah. Like a magnifying glass, maybe? Whatever you can find. Okay. Whatever you can find. And then you Blow just- Blow torch. You, you have to rid the car of ants. That's, oh, that's but just... you can't rid the car of ants fully. So do you just burn the car to the ground? Yeah, that... that's where you just turn it over to insurance and say, yeah, I don't even know where my car is. You just back it into the water. <laughs> I think that uh, falls under the comprehensive coverage. There are the ants. I bet you there are a lot of people that all of a sudden are, hey, I needed a new car. Yeah. <laughs> but think about how much time it's going to take. Yeah. Well, again, our prayers are with you. And uh, people, you can donate Red Cross. There's other sources. Uh, if just just go find the Twitter feed of your favorite uh, celebrity, and they will lead you right to how you can donate. That's their purpose. That is exactly what they're doing. Um, great stuff uh, ahead too. Terry's going to do the headlines in a minute. Jeff's got some interesting uh, empty news that we've got to cover. All of it here to help you uh, live longer and healthier lives, better lives. But first to the headlines, Terry, what should we be paying attention to? Houston Mayor Sylvester Turner imposed an overnight curfew in the city amid record flooding from Hurricane Harvey, imposing a curfew from 10 p.m. to 5 a.m. to stop any property crimes against evacuated homes and city limits. Uh, There are people who are impersonating officers telling homeowners in the flooded areas that they must evacuate, then robbing the empty homes after they leave. Really? Those were the reports, and so they put the curfew in. 
because looting was going on. Yeah. 19,000 people have sought refuge in Houston. The main storm shelter in downtown Houston is a capacity of 5,000 people, but it's now holding over 9,000 people. They've opened up, an, uh, I heard, an, an, uh, another convention center that's near where the Houston Texans NFL team plays. Yeah. And that can hold a bunch more people. Uh, there was a church that used to be where the Houston Rockets basketball team used to play. They moved to a new stadium. The old stadium <laughs> was taken over by Olstein. Is that his name? Yeah, J- Joel Olstein. Olson. I don't know if there's yeah. a T in there. But uh, he took some criticism because initially he didn't open yeah. his church. Right. And because they said they had some flood damage. Well, and it's people hard. Like, we, people can't even get there, so it's, it's not, you can't open it. It's, so he finally buckled and opened the church, and so there's more places for people to go. Uh, the death toll, as we talked about, stands at 18. The largest oil refinery in the U.S. prepared to shut down production Tuesday following damage from Tropical Storm Harvey. Port Arthur Refinery, owned by Motifa Enterprises, is home to more than 15% of the nation's refining capacity and uh, processes more than 600,000 barrels of oil a day. It's going to shut down. As Tropical Storm Harvey continues in Louisiana on Wednesday, the uh, hurricane-battered refineries in its wake are leaving residents of the Texan coast to cope with more than 2 million pounds of dangerous or carcinogenic chemicals that have been released into the air. It's adding to the cancer risk to the communities as well as the respiratory problems. Apparently, when you start, when you shut down or start up a refinery, there's a lot of chemicals that get kicked out that don't get caught by all the filters and everything. And so it's just that process. When it's running, the filters yeah, work once well. once it's running, the filters are up. But when you start up, it's that initial cough, cough, chug, chug. <coughs> that causes a lot of there's pollution. Plus, there's there's a lot of stuff in that water. Yeah, no idea what's I in mean, there. And maybe this, maybe all this chemical, maybe the and, chemicals will actually neutralize and it. And all I see, when you the rescuers, everyone's running around in shorts. I know. Ugh. I'm like, what are you guys doing? I don't know if pants are going to be much more help, but... Jerry, get out of the water. You're a 48-year-old man. Don't play in the water. <laughs> I don't know. Yikes. So in other news, President Trump, he did visit the uh, adjacent areas north of the flood zone yesterday yeah. in Austin. Today, he's uh, got his, uh, he'll pitch Americans on his tax overhaul plan in Springfield, Missouri, in a speech that is uh, light on, uh, it says, light on substance, heavy on populism, as a, uh, this is Axios, a okay. political website, but uh, Trump is proposing unrigging the economy and ending the uh, special interest loopholes that have only benefited the wealthy and powerful. Uh, when asked by the Wall Street Journal how Trump's promises could be taken seriously when his plans have so far been assessed as a gift to the wealthiest Americans, one side, uh, his one aide replied, how would, I, how would it look, uh, how would it look... How I would look at this, here we go, from the, an American worker's perspective is basically a, a made-in-America tax. Trump will label it a tax code that really allows all Americans to have access to the American dream. Every American worker will get a pay raise by getting to keep more of their paychecks, an aide tells uh, Politico. We're going to win again by slashing the business tax rate and making our companies competitive again. Hmm. So that's the hope. That's the idea. That's the thrust. We'll see if it actually goes into fruition. Yeah. He may take some hits because he's doing this as the flooding is still happening, but... Yeah. And, well, he might take some hits because he doesn't seem to have as much support in the GOP-led Congress and Senate as he needs. Right. Now, he is wearing, instead of the Make America Great Again hat, he's wearing a USA hat. Okay. It's available on his website, $40 straight from China. Make America Great through (laughs) low-cost hats from China. That always gets pointed out. I don't know where you get a hat made in this country. I don't know if they, 
I mean, there's places that do it, but I mean, the volume he's going to want to have because people want the same hat as the president. Do they? I don't know. Not a, apparently only thirty five percent do. <laughs> I like the color red. I got that going that's for it. Great. There's a red one. I believe there's a white. He option, nailed them. So. Yeah. So yeah. Options, yeah. It hats, seems like fashion. you shouldn't be wearing the hat that was your. Well, no, he, your his, campaign slogan his hat anymore. now says USA. Yeah, USA. That's right? the so one you should wear. People now. were saying this is showing growth. Mm-hmm. He's yeah. now gone from being a candidate to being the president. Mm-hmm. He's not wearing Make America Great anymore because he's already done it. Hmm? He's already done it. It's already it's, – it's done. Done what? He's made America great again. It's the winning. Are you tired of it yet? I'm exhausted. That's what he's <laughs> – I am tired of it. <laughs> Finally. Sick and tired of it. Health professionals in California reported cases where Eclipse viewers sought medical treatment because they put sunscreen on their eyeballs to look at the solar eclipse. Come on. Now, you're like, no, there's no way. There's a TV station in California where I got the story from. So, I mean, they put it on their nightly news. They talked to doctors. There's a My whole report. My eyes are burning. The California TV station reported that these individuals applied the sunscreen because they did not have NASA-approved eyewear. One of my colleagues here stated yesterday that they had patients presenting at their clinic that put sunscreen on their eyeballs and presented and uh, presented that they were having pain and they were referring referred to an ophthalmologist. Trish Patterson, a nurse at Prestige Urgent Care in Redding, California, said the uh, other reports are in Virginia have uh, patients complaining they applied the sunscreen to their eyes. The nurse said it only takes a second of staring directly at the sun to cause lasting damage. No, 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 no. I had sunscreen on. And people don't believe in Darwin. Hmm. Darwinism. Yeah. Those people, they're going to be blind. They should be dead. Apparently, they should have just stared at the eclipse without the sunscreen at that point. Do you have to tell people that? I, I don't know. I just found that story very. Do you know how many times we warned people flat out? Right. Just don't look at it. Don't look at it. Yeah. This sounds fake, right? No, you've met these people. <laughs> they're your they're your in-laws. They're related to you somehow. Not yours, but right. the general in-law. There's but somebody you know that you're like, I, saw I can't it here. believe he's still alive. I saw it here. People would, when they were taking him off the glasses and handing him to somebody else, they'd take a little peek. They'd well, look anybody up, can look at the sun for a second. Right. It's Everybody's good. done but every, that. Everyone's not doing this that. one. Those people apparently, they feel- You never looked at the sun? No, I didn't mean that. I meant you shouldn't look at the sun, the solar eclipse. Sun. Yes. Yeah, but it's that it's actually less bright than the real sun. Right. Which gives you that sense of security to So I'm just going to look at it for a few mm. minutes. But the whole idea of putting sunscreen on your eyeballs, mm. like, seriously, first of all, that's got to hurt. <laughs> it's got to sting. Oh, wow. I am so glad that I've got my family and – But at least your eyes are water resistant for up to you know, three or four dowsings in the <laughs> water of your choice, I guess, in the pool. You have to reapply in 30 minutes, but you're fine. Uh, what SPF do we need if we want to look at the sun? 90, of course. You're going to want to go with 90. You're going to want to use that white yeah, base. The stuff you put on your yeah. nose. Yeah. The zinc. Is that what it is? Yeah. You're going to want the zinc little, oxide. A little extreme. <laughs> I can't see a thing now. I've got zinc oxide on my eyeballs. Okay. Crazy. By the way, uh, speaking of Frankenstein, it's Frankenstein Day. Yes, folks. Sit down and enjoy. Ah, ah. <laughs>
Did he just say burn? Burn. Burn. Fire. Burn. He's looking at the sun. That's that's what they should have been. Uh, that's what they should have been saying. Today's the day we sit down and enjoy the original Mary Shelley tale of uh, it's her birthday, by the way. A strong book of science fiction and horror, along with some romance and action. It's Frankenstein Day, folks. Celebrate the creature created by Doctor Frankenstein, or Frank Junior. We call him. Happy Frankenstein Day. It's also Slinky Day. Slinky. I love slinkies. It kept me so nimble for years, running up and down the stairs, getting that thing to walk down the stairs. It only happened twice. I tried it like a thousand times, but I could only get the slinky to go all the way down two or three times. I think my slinky had a – was a little hinky. (laughs) You know what I mean? Hinky slinky. Hinky slinky. Anyway, uh, Jeff, what are some other headlines we should be uh, focused on? Anything else that is, you know, the news that we don't even know we need to know? So you've probably said something in front of somebody that you didn't mean to, thinking maybe they weren't there, or maybe you've accidentally called somebody and uh, they could overhear your conversation. But has it ever cost you your job? No, not hmm. yet. Not yet. Well, there's a high-earning state court official. Was He was fired Thursday morning just after the New York Post revealed how he butt-dialed a reporter and inadvertently revealed that I barely show up to work. David Bookstaver, who uh, he was canned from his 166,000-plus-a-year job as communications director for the Office of Court Administration, less than seven weeks before his planned October 1st retirement. What? And before a September 27th birthday that would have boosted his taxpayer-funded pension. That is not yeah. right. Uh, so he basically goes on to say, so uh, I spoke to the reporter on the record for a while. I said, I'm in a much less visible position. That doesn't mean I'm not doing anything. Bookstaver said. But frankly, look, the bottom line, the story's true. I'm not doing anything. I barely show up to work and I've been caught. So, Oh, okay. As a taxpayer, does that make you furious? Yes. Or only if you're in your uh, only if you are in New York. No, that makes me furious. I mean, I thought You look furious. I'm ticked. Yeah, you're paying for these people to work. And yeah, he's the communications director too. Yeah. He's not very not good, good at that job. Uh, have you ever tried to load a grill in the back of your truck? Oh, I thought you meant like a grill in my mouth. Oh, no. We'll get to that in a I second. I load my we grill can, every day. We'll uh, have our Diddy Dental sponsor here. Okay, cool. Yeah. So there was a couple transporting a barbecue, mm-hmm. and they were injured after their SUV exploded. Ooh. The couple had a barbecue grill in the back of their Kia Sorento. Not a good idea. Hold it, yeah. And the grill was turned on, and the propane tank was open and connected. Kaboom. The wife went to light up a cigarette, and the SUV exploded. The couple suffered some burns, but survived. The car was destroyed. Okay, let me get this straight. They're, They're, I guess, transporting their barbecue. It was hot. And the the propane was flowing, and then mom decides, I need me a cigarette. Right now. 
right now. <laughs> and she lit the cigarette and blew up her car. Kaboom. But they survived. Mm-hmm. But the Kia Sorento, no. Uh, what about the barbecue? I, I don't think he made it. Bummer. I mean, the Kia Sorento is one thing. Was that sexist to just assume it, the grill was a, a he, not a she? Yeah. Sorry. It. It's an it. Well, you know, you live and you learn, folks. That's why we give you the empty news, so that you now know if you're in a Kia Sorento and you're, you know, driving around with your hot grill on, don't light a cigarette. Duh. Anyway. We're here to help any way we can. Up next, we're going to be talking about the myth of the ADHD child. Are there some things we're missing? Are we too quick to medicate? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, doing what we can to uh, help you live healthier, happier lives right here on BYU Radio. Well, with your kids uh, heading back to school, you know, you might be finding out some new things about your children. Maybe you didn't know uh, last year, maybe some uh, inattentiveness, some inability to focus, and it starts to worry you, right? So you got to figure out, what am I supposed to do? Maybe a teacher said your child may have ADHD. So joining us uh, to talk about it, psychologist and learning specialist Dr. Thomas Armstrong is here to provide a thought-provoking argument about ADHD that maybe, uh, you know, there's maybe we're we're overdiagnosing. Maybe there's some myths to the ADHD child that we need to better understand. And uh, we're honored to have him. He's a PhD and the executive director of the American Institute for Learning and Human Development. Uh, Dr. Thomas Armstrong, thank you for being with us today. Thank you very much for having me on, Matt. You bet. Now, because ADHD, I mean, it's it seems like you know, we trust our, our psychiatrists, our child psychiatrists, our psychologists to make these uh, diagnoses, but it's a complicated diagnosis, isn't it? Well, it is and it isn't. I mean, basically, ADHD is defined by its symptoms, which include hyperactivity, distractibility, and impulsivity. And those are the behavioral equivalent of a headache. And, of course, you can have a headache for a number of reasons, mm. and you can have these symptoms for a number of reasons. You can have the symptoms because you're bored uh, in school, because you're allergic to milk, because you're a highly physical learner, uh, and a number of other reasons as well. So uh, while I agree that the symptoms are very real and, and often very challenging for both parents and teachers, um, the reason I wrote The Myth of the ADHD Child is because I want people to think about the, uh, about the disorder. I want them to... Uh, question it because we have taken it to uh we've taken to it rather too quickly and as a result the uh, the uh rates of adhd have gone up 43 percent hmm. since 2003 and that's just ridiculous uh in europe where they have a different classification for mental disorders they see one to three percent um have this disorder here in the United States, it's 11%. So, and in some states, it's as high as 18%, if you can believe it. 
Um, wow. And I think Utah is a little, uh, pretty much on the low side of, of the equation. But uh, I think we're turning to the diagnosis and to the me- medications too quickly instead of first asking ourselves, well, what are some of the strategies that we can use to help them? And that's why I, in the book I have 101 strategies that don't involve the use of drugs that parents can turn to first before, you know, thinking, well, what kind of medication is going to work best for my child? Although any decisions about medication, of course, need to be taken in conjunction with your uh, family physician or a psychiatrist or somebody else with an MD degree. Um, But I'm writing this book more as an educator, as a learning specialist, um, helping uh, parents understand that there are a lot of alternatives out there that they can look at before necessarily resorting first to medication. Boy, it really is. It's it's like we're quick to diagnose. We um, we're then quick to medicate. It seems like, but the I, I, isn't it true that the long term effectiveness of the medication it tends to fade. It tends to lose some of its hold. Exactly. They did a federal study, which was the largest study of the effectiveness of various treatments for ADHD. And it's a, a long, uh, many-year study, and what they've discovered, two things mainly. They discovered that it's not effective in the long run, and number two, they discovered that it stunts physical growth by on an average of two inches. Mm. And this is something that didn't get a lot of uh, news coverage uh, when it came out, and I, I noticed after that um, a spate of news uh, articles on how medications could uh, prevent uh, car crashes and stuff like that. Yeah, and I just wondered if they somebody was feeding the opposite, you know, uh, trying to do damage control from the revelations of this study. Because I mean, if you're giving your dr- a drug to your kids and they're going to be two inches shorter as a result. Yeah. You've got to give some serious consideration to whether or not this is going to be the best thing down the line. Boy, that is so – isn't it funny what we glom on to and, and not pay attention to? I mean, stunting your growth by two inches, it's a big deal. And, and I mean, really what it's also telling you is the power of some of these drugs. And I, I've also seen people that have a, such an – they have a really strong aversion to, to wanting to take any medicine – where, but their kid also seems to really need the medicine and has a diagnosis right. and they don't want to take it. So some of this is, I guess it's just understanding the issue better. And, and it sounds like that's yeah. what you're trying to do with the book is blow up the myths and, and really inform and give a lot of other alternatives. Yes, exactly. And I'm not against medication use. I should be clear on that. Um, that it's made a big difference in the lives of some kids. I'm just saying that it should be considered later rather than sooner, you know, at the first signs of trouble. And uh, I think if we do that, uh, parents are going to um, find that they're going to be using strategies. I mean, a lot of the strategies in the book are really helpful for all kids, and they're part of a healthy lifestyle. And I think partly, you know, one of the reasons we have such an epidemic of ADHD is because of our mass media culture, mm. that uh, the media has literally programmed our brains to require quicker rewards, you know. Uh, we process our information now in short bits rather than in longer intervals. And our kids are the most vulnerable to that, and they're the ones who have been grown up in this short attention span culture. And so it seems... 
understandable that they would then begin to process and think uh, in other areas of their life, like in school, in this short attention span way. Uh, so I think that's one reason why we're seeing an increase. I think another reason is that we have put too many expectations on children, to, uh, especially at earlier ages. Um, we are making our kindergartens into our second grades and our preschools into our first grades, and we're you know pushing all this academic material on kid, young kids who should be spending time in preschool and kindergarten playing mm. instead of sitting in front of a worksheet. And I think that this pressure on kids also has something to do with the, the increase in attention problems. That's so true, too. I mean, kids need to be kids, and I think we also think that they, they're going to all develop on schedule, like exactly. as a class, as a cohort. You know, what's interesting is that there's a stu- uh, several studies now that say that if a child is young for his grade, let's say he's the youngest kid in the grade, um, he, regardless of other factors involved, he stands a 30% greater chance of being identified as ADHD and medicated, mm. just by virtue of being the youngest in his class. No way. Which suggests that, in, you know, that, that we're, we're pushing kids who are, you know, slower to grow. And I don't look at it as a negative thing because, you know, Einstein was slow to talk. You know, he didn't talk until he was like four or something like that. And so it's not a bad thing. It's just a different rate uh, of growth. And, and another set of studies have suggested that the brains of kids uh, diagnosed with ADHD develop normally, but about two to three years later than typically developing kids. So uh, that may explain the reason why we see these kids who are young for grade uh, getting diagnosed. Uh, but this, this is more of a developmental issue than it is a medical disorder. How interesting is I mean, because we asked, what grade are you in? Instead of when's your birthday and are you older or younger in this class and right. what's the competition like? What's everyone else doing in the class? Um, is it so? So talk about that. Is I mean, is there just not standards? Are there are there like because everybody has a different opinion of ADHD. The teacher needs the kids to behave, but it may be that this child is bored by the lack of movement of the class and the other is fidgety and so who creates the standards is it the medical side is it the educational side should it be the parents well i'm trying to in the book i'm trying to really look at the whole picture i'm trying to include the medical but also add the psychological the emotional the cognitive the creative uh the uh communicative you know as many different dimensions as possible it's like the blind man and the elephant you know Everybody seems to touch upon a piece of the truth, and I'm just trying to reconstruct the whole elephant for people so that they can uh, see that, you know, everybody's got, in a sense, everybody's got a piece of the truth. It's true, too. I mean, when, you, when you deal with some, of, uh, with some people that might be diagnosed with ADHD, you also just see that their brain is special. They, they, a lot of them right. are incredible processors and can handle disparate amounts of information, but it needs to come in in different ways and certain ways. And so it's almost easier, I I found, to see them as gifted rather than, you know, broken. Exactly. That's another problem I have with the ADHD label. You look at ADHD, there's three negatives in it. Attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder. It's like yeah. you're, you're dissing that person three, three times. times every time you do, uh, you know, refer to that. 
And uh, the you know I also in the book I do discuss the connections between um, the ADHD brain and creativity. Uh, these individuals are novelty seekers. They get bored easily. So what's wrong with that? Why do we call a disorder a, a situation where somebody gets bored easily? We should say that's a good thing right. because it'll keep us on our toes. In, in the classroom, they get especially bored if the teacher's lecturing, if they have to read a book silently, if they have to do a silent worksheet, something like that. But they become almost indistinguishable from typically developing kids if they're involved in active learning, if they're involved in a um, stimulating conversation in class, if they're uh, actively writing, if they're doing role play, you know, if they're uh, building a project or something like that. They, they, they blend in with everybody else because they just need a higher level of stimulation than the average Joe. That's why the medication works. Most of the medications out there for ADHD are psychostimulants, and they bring the stimulation uh, for that child up to what their optimal level is, which is higher than the typically developing person. So uh, there are differences, but I'd like to put the emphasis on differences rather than disabilities and disorders. That's the important thing. Isn't that interesting? And I'm, I'm thinking if I'm a school teacher, I would love to have my kids do silent reading or a worksheet so that I could sit and relax for 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And then that Yahoo kid just can't sit still and he keeps interrupting my break. Well, you know, one of the strategies I included in the book is to allow the child to fidget. There's new research saying that fidgeting actually helps the child with the ADHD diagnosis focus. Uh, they do better when yeah. they're fidgeting. Again, because what they're doing is delivering themselves, uh, delivering stimulation to themselves. And that serves to calm them down. Another strategy is to uh, buy wiggle furniture, which includes uh, uh, stability balls, you know, these giant balls that they use in Pilates. Yeah. You use those as chairs so that they can bounce up and down while they work. And this is also shown to be uh, an effective way of actually calming them down. It seems paradoxical, but it's actually right along with this theory of optimal stimulation. Now, it's interesting because you bring up fidgeting and, uh, and, and just kind of allowing the energy to come out, and it actually just keeps the brain processing. Um, so what, what's your take on fidget spinners? Well, I'm not wild about fidget spinners. Um, partly because their, uh, part of their um, attraction is visual, you know, is watching that thing spinning, spinning, spinning mm -hmm. around. I think it's much better to have a kinesthetic um, source of stimulation. So, you know, I mean, if they're watching this thing spin around, they're obviously not paying attention right. to what they're supposed right. to be paying attention to. But if they have a squeeze ball... Or if they have these things, that are, they're called bouncy bands that are like bungee cord uh, things that you stretch across the legs of, uh, of, a, of a chair. And so you can kind of bounce your knees off of them uh, as, you, as you work. Those uh, um, are much better because they don't interfere with the visual uh, perception, the visual processing. Um, in the way that these fidget spinners do. I really, was really kind of surprised to see how much focus and attention and, and, and news coverage was given to the fidget spinners. They're kind of fun, you know. Yeah. It's like, you know, wow, how does it stay going for so long, you know. 
uh, perpetual motion machine, that kind of thing. But it's really not, uh, I don't think, the most effective of the fidgeting uh, tools out there. Which, again, yeah, you're helping us blow up some of those myths really is the key. We're speaking with Dr. Thomas Armstrong, who is... um, uh, is the executive director of the American Institute for Learning and Human Development and an award-winning author and speaker. He uh, is the author um, of the book The Myth of the ADHD Child, which has sold over a million copies. And he's joining us today to help us cut through the myth and understand better ADHD and our children. We'll continue the journey helping to uh, bring peace and hopefully some um, happiness to your family Uh, and better understanding of what might be going on with your kids. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us right here on BYU Radio. We are talking about The Myth of the ADHD Child, a book written by Dr. Thomas Armstrong, who is the executive director of the American Institute for Learning and Human Development and the author of the book. And today, really, I we've got kids going back to school, and I, I worry that the minute they start, you know, seemingly you know, not comporting, not doing what they're supposed to be doing, everyone gets uptight. Then we quickly uh, diagnose them as having ADHD, medicate those bad boys, and all of a sudden everything's supposed to be better. Uh, but, uh, Thomas, you're giving us really another option. What what should we do as we kind of um, – as we think about it, let's say I my child was uh, – I got a note from the teacher saying he just can't focus. He can't pay attention. How do I begin getting the right diagnosis, and then what are some things I can do to make sure we we move about this in a healthy way? Yes, well, I mean that's why I wrote the book. There's 101 strategies that I provide. Uh, of course, I think that the parent, if they're concerned, should also consult with their physician uh, and get their perspective on things. And you know, again, I'm not against medication use if it seems to be successful, but. Uh, you know, I, I'd like to see parents uh, look at some of the alternatives. I talk about, you know, things like um, get your child out in nature more often because when kids are in nature, um, their ADHD symptoms go down. Mm. Um, get your kid involved in moderate to vigorous exercise because exercise has been associated with higher rates of concentration and focus. Um, provide a breakfast before you send them off to school. Provide a breakfast that combines carbohydrates and proteins so that you've got, you know, um, milk and oatmeal or you've got a bean burrito or you've got eggs and toast. Uh, that kind of a uh, thing will provide a more uh, attention-focusing uh, prep for uh, them having that uh, attention, especially early on in the day. Um, support, uh, you know, in general, a healthy diet. Uh, there, the, uh, there's a, um, an oil called omega-3 oils that are found in uh, certain fish like trout and salmon and uh, tuna and such. And those are also linked to better outcomes for mm. kids who are labeled ADHD. Find a sport that your child will love and get involved in. Uh, martial arts actually is very good. You mentioned boys. Yeah. And I wanted, I wanted to say something about that, because that's another reason why we have this 
spate of ADHD diagnoses is because we don't let boys be boys anymore. Uh, you know, boys, uh, typically, they like to get together and wrestle and roughhouse. And that, that in the classroom, you, you know, that's <laughs> part of the a thing that the teacher's going to say, we've got a problem here. And when they're just doing sort of natural boy behavior. Um, so, you know, when your child isn't in school, make sure they've got plenty of time to play. And I don't mean competitive soccer necessarily. I just mean just, you know, kind of the natural roughhousing that uh, that boys tend to do. Um, there are just so many uh, ways, you know, in the classroom they should be doing project-based learning. Uh, if there are emotional issues involved, um, possibly considering family therapy could be a, an option. Um, or simply teaching your child some self-regulation skills, you know, uh, the ability to recognize when you're about to get angry, you know, like, oh, the uh, hair on the back of my neck starts to whistle. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I, okay, so you can recognize that. So what are you going to do the next time you get that kind of red flag? And you give them strategies. Well, you know, take a deep breath, hold it for a count of five and, and let it out and repeat that until you feel relaxed. Or um, say to yourself uh, uh, some sort of uh, statement like, I will not punch my sister <laughs> in, the, in the head, um, or I will treat my sister better would be a better... Um, yeah. Uh, so, you know, and also it's really important that, you know, the parent hold a positive image of their child, you know, see their child as a novelty seeker and a creator. And really, I think a good suggestion would be for parents to meet early with the teacher, Is you know, even before they get that call, you know, about the problem, that they short-circuit that by going in and saying, like, this is my child, he's kind of different, you know, he he might show that he's not being attentive, but if you actually give him a chance to fidget, he actually does very well. Um, he doesn't do well under these conditions. He does well un- under these. And let's stay in touch throughout the whole year. Good homeschool communication is a key here in, in um, making sure that, that uh, problems don't spin out into major crises uh, later on during the year. So an active parent really is, is, is the best uh, sort of strategy to take. Even and if things are really bad, you know, sometimes a child just gets on the wrong side of a teacher, and there's, an, you know, it's really a it's a relationship problem that can't be solved. Um, then it's a good idea to see if there are other teachers in the school that the child could maybe do better with. Uh, and in some cases, uh, I've got one strategy called consider alternative schooling options. And that could be another school out there that uses a more active learning kind of strategy. It could also mean homeschooling. You know, many mm. parents have, have uh, short-circuited the cycle of failure their kids are in by taking them out of school and actually teaching them themselves. Um, this is a way of feeding their strengths, of focusing on stimulation and stimulating activities. You know, they can go together to a science museum and they can do experiments out by the neighborhood pond and you know there are just a lot more options available when you're homeschooling than when you're in a uh, a classroom where you know obviously the teacher has 30 other kids to worry about and the um, the the behavioral expectations tend to be higher now the, the other issue is you've got boy behavior and most of the elementary school teachers are female hmm. so part of, part of what we're you know 
suggesting is that maybe uh, female teachers should do some professional development, take a workshop on uh, normal boy behavior. Boys like to change activities more often. They like to engage in object play. So those are the kind of things the teacher should think about. Teachers should be, you know, just to talk about teachers for a moment, uh, if they're going to do lecture, and a lot of a lot of times they have to do it, especially in this day and age, you know, with the emphasis on standardized testing, which is a real problem in my estimation. Um, but if they have to do it, then at least build in some, uh, like, exercise break, you know, every 20 or 30 minutes. Some uh, teachers put on a, a exercise video, you know, for their kids. Um, and other, uh, others just have them stand and jump up and down a number of mm. times or uh, run around the building a couple of times, yeah. you know, just as a way to work off. And, uh, you know, I do, this, I do a lot of teacher workshops around the world, and this is something that I regularly do. You know, if I've been talking too long, I say, okay, everybody, stop what you're doing. Let's all stand up and let's do some physical exercise. And, and then I, at the end I say, how many people feel your attention is going to be better over the next half, half an hour? And everybody raises their hand. Yeah. And if this is true of, of typically developing adults, Imagine how effective it can be for kids who are growing up in our short short attention span world. So, so true. Dr. Thomas Armstrong, great, great ideas, and so many of them. Again, the name of the book is The Myth of the ADHD Child. And uh, really, if you're worried about uh, your child might have ADHD, maybe don't. You know, it may not need the worry. Maybe it's a gift, right? This could be a blessing as well. And it might also say it's going to be a little harder. You're going to have to do more work, maybe uh, get more creative, gather more tools like Dr. Armstrong's book. And um, and just know that if we can frame them as, as not a disorder, but as, a you know, a different gift, a, a, a child that really is bringing something special to the world, You might also create some magic out of this as well. We appreciate uh, the opportunity to learn, and we hope uh, as you're dealing with your kids, you always remember they're a gift, um, not just a disorder or a diagnosis. We'll continue the journey. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, You know, we always like to turn to the empty news, the news you didn't know you needed to know. And who better to help us with that than Jeffrey Simpson? So pizza makes us do some crazy things. We can invent that, right? Yeah, but in a good way. Okay. Well, this is not a good way. Uh, A man in Lake Worth, Florida, has been arrested on charges of battery, criminal mischief, and throwing deadly missiles into an occupied building. What? After he was turned away from a pizzeria and became violent, police say. Wow. Yeah. He was throwing deadly missiles? This better be like the best pizza in the world. Yeah. James Dennison, 56, allegedly entered Lake Worth Pizza on Wednesday evening and asked for a free slice of pizza. Seems seems a bit unreasonable. Uh, When a waitress refused, he began to yell at her. Employees then escorted Dennison outside of the restaurant where he picked up a concrete planter and attempted to throw it through the window. 
One of the employees was able to knock the planter out of his hands. Dennison then hurled several rocks into the restaurant, shattering a pizza display case. Dennison was later arrested in a nearby parking lot. This guy wanted his pizza. See, there's nothing wrong with wanting a free slice of pizza, but demanding a free yeah. slice of pizza? This reminds make me any sense. of you after your first week on your diet. <laughs> Do you remember? Sounds about like, right. I've got to get pizza. Honey, what would you like for dinner tonight? Pizza. Me need nachos. <laughs> anyway, that's a crazy story. Wow. By the way, just started taking iron supplements. Oh, good. And uh, oh wait, never mind. That was something else. <laughs> the end. The they end. taste just like carrots. But my af- oh my after sh- or my uh, shaving cream that I put on this morning smelled just like nachos. Everything smells like nachos to you now. Yeah, you were smelling Terry's arm like nachos. <laughs> anyway, we'll continue the journey, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Get at it. Welcome back, folks. To the Matt Townsend Show. You're right. Yeah. Were you channeling your inner Larry the Cable Guy? Get it up. Was that Tourette's? What's happening? No, I'm just... Early onset Tourette's. Just trying to give out a motivational phrase. All right. Well, I'm motivated now. Try so, again. <laughs> so have you ever like been somewhere? Like We used to go to a church farm mm. where they'd have to bring everyone in before you started doing anything like with the animals or whatever. Yeah, and then they'd g- hey, gather round, gather round. Everybody gathers round, and then like some surly cowboy teaches all the city folk how to handle the livestock. Yep. Whatever you do, don't walk behind them. Mm-hmm. Don't touch them when you're walking behind them. Don't be near their behinds. Yep. Thanks, Sally. And then... <laughs> Sally's like, straight up. And then let's I have agree. our prayer. And then after, we're going to have a buffet. Well, we call it a buffet here at the farm. And then, and then, and then he gives you all these things. Okay, now, get at it. All right, well. And then you walk away. Was this there a clap? Is, this is real? Yeah. Oh. Oh, uh-huh. You must not have ever been to a church farm. Those are from your revivalist days, huh? Yeah. Those are the good old days. Back when they used to send me there to, you know, learn how to cull the herd. Cull the herd. Yeah. Okay. That's when we used to dip them and stick them and tag them and... Bag them? No, we never bagged them. Oh, okay. I'm like, that's the next... You've never You're talking about hamburgers, right? No. No. Okay. No, we, we have like... On a farm, you have to dip your cattle... Every year to get all the bugs off of them and to give them. We don't have cattle. No, you guys don't. No, we have like a. You got to stick them. Then you said stick them and just, wrap them in a bag. Then you got to tag that's, them. That's the process of getting no, a hamburger. No, you don't bag them. You tag them. You got to put the tags on the little baby calf's ears. Hmm. You got to. Ketchup, no onions. You gotta, that's tagging it. You got to You got to castrate them. Whoa, hey, hey, hmm. whoa. We did all hmm. of this. Anyway, get at it. A little motivation for you this morning as you get up. <laughs> wow. Trying to uh, do what we can to help you have a better life. Yeah, we we have like a baseball diamond near mm-hmm. the church yeah. I go to. Yeah, your church owns a diamond. There's some uh, grass out there, and they pay a guy to mow it. So Yeah, got to mow it. 
That's as close as it gets to Dude, farming. Don't they, don't they have you like go, you know, paint the benches or something? Oh, yeah. Occasionally. I don't take part, but that's cool. I yeah. do other things. That's good. Yes. That's why, that's why we're here. Today we're going to – again, we, we're, we're, we're holding back nothing. We're giving you everything you could ever need. Today – Stream of consciousness? Yeah. Okay. How to respond to critical people. What? So when somebody's criticizing you, what are you supposed to do? How do you take that? Wrong. Right. You could just say wrong. You could have your attorneys get after them. Hmm. You could have your security people get rid of them. Or we'll be speaking with a, a, a social worker, a counselor, telling us some other ways to handle critical people. Hmm. Maybe. Are they constructive ways? Yes. Oh, well, okay. Yeah. What do you do when the person's always like talking behind your back, saying something rude? Are they cathartic in any way, or is it just like a reasonable adult way to handle the problem? Some of those really aren't as cathartic. They might be reasonable. They yeah. might be the best way, the well, better choice. Cathartic, but... you just want to haul off and well, start – like we just learned last hour, the guy that didn't get pizza wanted to just start throwing things through the pizza window. I feel his pain. Yeah. You can't do that. It's time to be a grown-up. What about the customer-first mentality? <laughs> you didn't give me my pizza. What am I supposed to do? See, if it was like asparagus – I would think the guy was being unreasonable, but it's pizza. So it's like, it's well, pizza. he might have a point there. Well, it is. I mean, it's a staple. Yeah. I mean, they may not think that it's and if a you staple eat too in much Houston of it, where they really need staples. If you eat too right. much of it, you're going to have to have your stomach stapled. It's always the stretch. Have you noticed that um, they laugh stretch more? Stretch marks. It mm. keeps happening. They always laugh more at his jokes than our jokes. You tell jokes? See, there's somebody in that laugh track that's really that digging lady. in on the laugh. <laughs> there's always one that, like, yeah. you can laugh with the crowd and then you overlaugh everyone else. And it's, come on. But that's the one they put in there to make you laugh. Because now every time you hear that lady with the smoker's hack yeah. coughing or laughing – you Either want way. to laugh too. My mom was not a, is not a smoker, but anytime we would go back and watch some sort of a performance that we videotaped, you could always tell that she was in the audience because of her laugh. You could hear, "Oh, that's beautiful." Yeah, what a great mom. She is. I know. No, I'm serious. That's how neat that when you watch those videos fifty years from now. You'll hear your mom laughing and always know she was supporting you. And you can always tell if my Aunt Sue, uh, we'll call her Aunt Blue, um, is in the audience because of her uncontrollable cough. Oh, Blant Blue? With, uh, Blant Blue. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the one with the, um, the tuberculosis thing? No. By the way, what, what I think another neat part about when you watch those videos – um, and you can hear your mom's laugh, is you'll also hear the the guard at the penitentiary say, no touching, <laughs> no touching. That'll be neat too. Hmm. Just to, You can watch those videos and remember the good old days. We had different videos, I guess. Is this part of the sharing everything aspect of the show you were just talking about? <sighs> yeah. All right, great. I'm trying to get everything out just of me. Get it all out there. Get it out there. Um, no, I was talking about Jeff no, at the, the penitentiary. Yeah, but the theme is just everything on the table. Mm-hmm. Just so get we, it all we've out. talked farm animals. Yep. Uh, we've talked uh, dip them, stick them, bag them, tag them, bag them, tag them, and we've talked about 
penitentiary videos. And don't forget the uh, the voice on the random laugh track that <laughs> overshadows <laughs> the rest of the laugh yeah. track. See, everything's on the table. Okay, it's all out there now. It's good. Plus, of course, we'll be talking about how to deal with critical people. And BYU Sports Nation, they'll be up. Not critical at all there. And also a little hero story. Are all they, of that. Are they going to the game? Are they going to go to Louisiana? Or are they going to you no, know, anchor coverage from, I don't know. from school here? I think you, usually Spencer goes and Jerem, somebody has to babysit the, the staff. Right. Sure. Then they leave Jerem back to babysit. Hmm. I wasn't sure if they did live on location. Yeah. Somebody's got to watch Ben. Yeah, totally. Ben Bagley. Yeah, Baglovich. Uh, we'll get to all that fun straight ahead. But first to Terry South with the uh, headlines. While it's still too early to fully assess the damage from Hurricane Harvey, immediate concerns about costly damage to the Gulf's gas and oil industry were somewhat reduced Monday, as they do not appear to have been seriously compromised, the New York Times writes. Moody's analytics told the Wall Street Journal that about 2 million barrels a day of refinery capacity, about 10% of the nation's overall refining capacity, is now offline. While gas prices are expected to spike, as they historically do after major storms, costs could go back to normal after a few weeks. In sum, economists were predicting that the storm's cost would be less than half that of uh, 2005's Hurricane Katrina's, the time writes. Katrina cost more than $100 billion in damage, a number that was exacerbated by the failure of levees. Moody's estimates at, that Harvey will cost several billion, with around 30 to $40 billion in property damage. So a lot, Boy. a lot, but less. Yeah. Unbelievable. Trying to find a silver lining in a mud puddle. $50 billion-ish dollars in damage. Wow. But less than Katrina. Yeah, I mean, no, that's good. So, and fewer deaths, that's really good. Uh, other Harvey-related news, ABC reporter Tom Lamas has been reporting on the floods in the Houston area all week and has kept viewers up to speed via his Twitter account. Yesterday, he sent out a tweet which claimed that he had seen looters in the area and that he had reported it to police. We informed police of the looting and the Coast Guard is flying overhead. Multiple officers now on the scene, Lamas tweeted in earnest. Lamas started getting heat on social media. He deleted the tweet and sent out clarification made cl- and making clear that he didn't spot any roving bands of marauders terrorizing helpless <laughs> citizens, just people looting a grocery store. He saw laws being broken, so he reported the incident. People criticized the reporter for wasting precious resources on people trying to survive in a very difficult time. So the question is, when is looting okay, and when is reporting on others looting okay? Or not okay? Hmm. Well, it seems like looting, never okay. All right. Maybe what if there's like a going out of business sale anyway? You wouldn't be looting. You'd be right. purchasing. Yeah. Mm. Well, anyway, so, some would. letter of the law, people are stealing. <laughs> yeah. But you're in this horrible situation. Doesn't matter. Does that change anything? Because well, people on social media apparently feel like that changes things. You should be able to go in and grab what you want. Maybe if it's a survival that's what they were, item. That's what they were criticizing yeah. him yeah, for but reporting if you, on. If, Not like an iPad. I, know, I mean, if you own, let's say your last name is Ikea. Right. Just for instance. Just because there's a disaster doesn't mean, hey, free for all. Who needs a futon? Hmm. It can't work like that. Yeah, but what if it's like a lantern or a flashlight or some food? You uh. know what? If you want to ask me, there's guys, there are people that are giving away stuff. There's people that are letting them into their store. Absolutely. And so, I mean, but you, you can't take it. I don't know what they're thinking. So there's this moral. So they're mad at the guy because he's the, reporting on. He, he turned them in for in the people of social media world's eyes trying to survive by just gathering food. 
The problem is that food was somebody else's property in a right. store Where that was locked. Where does that end? Yeah, that seems like... So it's like you cross that line to... Go, I mean, granted, there's a problem if, here, but... Let's say they went into a store and then they were shot. They went into a store re- and they were shot. Thank you. Should they? Should he report that? They break into a store to get the, their, bait, their, their, yeah. their necessities and then someone shoots them. Should the CNN reporter report that? Yeah. What the... Yeah, what, uh, who, yeah I know. Huh? It felt like a weird argument. Like, why yeah. are you guys fighting this? That's they were crazy. stealing. But, you know. No, I but guess... it makes sense. I mean, the, there's no law. I mean, there's no law and order in the middle of chaos like that. But there's still there should be. morality. Right. So if you're ever in a, in a disaster in the Draper, Utah area, go to Matt Townsend's house. Don't He'll come, take care of you. Don't come to my house. <laughs> in other news, people with low-fat diets increase their risk of early death by nearly a quarter, a stunning study has found. Researchers discovered that people with low-fat diets tend to turn to carbohydrates, foods like bread, rice, and pasta, mm. and that high-carb eaters had almost 30% higher risk of dying than people with low-carb diets. Really? So uh, the researcher said loosening the restrictions on total fat and saturated fat and imposing limits on carbohydrates when high to reduce intake is a moderate levels would be optimal. There is still plenty more research to be done. Researchers said that people shouldn't get excited and think I can eat as much saturated fat as I like. But what they're finding is it's not as bad as previously reported. And if you avoid it completely, you might be harming your health. Huh. Okay. Me gusta. So, you know, spread some Crisco. Right. Yeah. Well, Maybe Crisco's a bit too far. Yeah, that's a bridge too far. Finally, if you've uh, recently been fired from your job, Burger King wants to award you with a free Whopper. Oh, Jeff, I needed to tell you. Yeah. You're going to get a Whopper today. Business Insider <gasps> reports that Burger King launched its Own Your Fire promotion Tuesday and will send a Whopper severance package to the first 2,500 people who post the following message to their LinkedIn profile. So, Matt, get ready. Okay, hold on. You're the only one that really uses LinkedIn. Yeah. I got fired. I want a free Whopper. Hashtag Whopper severance. Whopper me! (laughs) Hashtag Whopper severance. As this says, it seems unlikely that Burger King will be able to vet people's claims of having been fired or to disqualify people who were fired for behavior Burger King would prefer not to be associated with, such as (laughs) sexual harassment or workplace violence. But a restaurant spokesperson said they believe applicants will get the lighthearted nature of the idea. Honey, I've got some Hmm. good news and I've got some bad news. So I got fired. But I got a Whopper. I got fired for embezzlement. Can I have a Whopper? I got a free Whopper. <laughs> well, that's great, honey. I'm so proud of you. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, so Jeff, uh, go to LinkedIn. Why? Just say, I got fired and I got a Whopper. Why? <laughs> I, um, I don't know if you noticed, we're having a meeting today and you weren't invited. Really? So it's not you... It's me. We need to let you go. You're a monster. But you do get a free Whopper. <laughs> that actually would make your day. Would it? They say, they say, like in the dentist's office, the last about five minutes of whatever you go through for the last five minutes is how you remember the, the event of, the, of the going to the dentist. So okay. they always, at the dental chair, they always like let you sit there and kind of come down off of your the drill and um and just they they kind of get you back to neutral before they let you go okay and they that, act yeah. like you're waiting for the doctor to come talk to you or the dentist mm-hmm. so it's always whatever happens in the last five minutes matters so if you're going to fire somebody 
and you're telling him, we got to let you go. You know, this is how we'll do it. We'll have security escort you out. Now, I've got some other news for you. If you go to LinkedIn, tell them you got fired and you want your Whopper, you'll get a free Whopper. Wow. And then just talk to them about the Whopper for like five minutes. Yeah. And oh. then they'll leave really happy. Well, that was a very positive <laughs> firing. Thank you. I, I, don't, I don't know what it is. I feel like sad and empty, but I have this hankering for a Whopper. Isn't this like the episode of The Office when Michael Scott fires one of his employees, but he gives him his Chili's gift card? <laughs> no. Did he do that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't watch TV. Way too busy working. Wrong. Way too busy thinking. You're wrong. Matt's always about rise and grind. Rise and grind. Just get up and get to work. Get to work. Get her all done. And I like to write. Get at it! <laughs> Let's hmm. just see how we came I don't circle. see that as being motivational. It's probably scary. No, it's kind of farmer motivational. Shocking. It's farmer. Hey, get at it! I don't know. Farmer motivation? Is that what we're looking for? Yeah. Okay. I mean, if you've got to go stick them, dip them, bag them, tag them, hmm. then you – then that's super motivational. <laughs> yeah. Life is good. See? Again, bringing you the information, the latest, greatest uh, news you need to know to live a healthier, happier life. Jeff, you've gone quiet. I just want to make sure you're you're still okay with – our plan to get you a Whopper today. You know I can't eat that. The bun. No, so you're getting fired and you can't eat. Yeah, just say hold the bun. I really want them to hold it. That would be funny. Can yeah. you hold this? And just hand them the bun. <laughs> That's what you do. You just, right when they hand it to you, you take, your, take the meat out and then just hand them the bun back. You can use this again. Well, I'm sorry. We're going to miss you. Good times here on the Matt Townsend Show. Up next, we're going to be talking about how to handle uh, the, cri- the critic in your life, how to push back without uh, becoming a jerk. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. When we open ourselves up to criticism, some can be constructive and help us to improve, and yet other criticism, you know, it's just too harsh. It's damaging. How can we protect ourselves from the naysayers and the backbiters without compromising our self-worth? Well, with us today to talk about it is uh, Allison Abrams, who is a licensed psychotherapist in New York and uh, gives us some tips on how not to let negative comments affect our self-worth. Allison, thank you so much for being with us today. Sure. Thanks for having me. You bet. What a great, um, what a great topic because it, it is easy, and I don't know if it's if it's happening more, but it seems like we live in a culture and a day and an age where everybody has an opinion and everybody wants to express it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, it's true, and it's easy to to project those uh, feelings and opinions onto other people. Yeah, I guess part of the key is there. There's good. There's good feedback. There's. I mean. There's. There's good constructive feedback, um, and and there's, I guess, unhealthy or less healthy constructive feedback. How do we know if what we're getting is constructive or not? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first um, first thing is to consider the source. 
um, consider who's giving you the criticism. Is this somebody that, um, is this someone that you know cares about you and wants the best for you? Uh, consider what the intention is. If it's, if it is someone, a loved one who wants the best for you, um, it, it could be helpful. Um, some criticism it is helpful. It helps us grow. It helps us learn. Um, and if it's somebody that, you know, if this is unsolicited criticism that you're getting from somebody that doesn't know you well and maybe doesn't have your best intention, your your best in mind, uh, something to consider as well. Yeah. Do you, I mean, I guess, because that's, that's the interesting thing is if you don't know the person, if then then I guess mm-hmm. you don't need to care about it. It's it's interesting, like having a radio show. Everybody has an opinion about what you should say, shouldn't mm-hmm. say, should do, or like even I've noticed, like writing a book. It's a very vulnerable thing because everybody has an opinion from just uh, what you said to your content, or just you know the paper you chose to have in the book. I, I guess knowing yeah. knowing who they are, knowing who's bringing it to you matters. Um, but th- it seems like there's some of us though that deep inside of us we're so we're still so sensitive to feedback. It's almost like we'd rather mm-hmm. run from it than hear it. Yeah, absolutely. I think most people, most of us, are we care about what people think. We're all human. Um, nobody likes to be given negative feedback or um, be perceived as uh, as negative. Um, but, you know, it's, I think the more we work on ourselves and uh, feeling good about ourselves and we work on um, increasing our sense of self-worth, the easier it'll be to, you know, to kind of buffer yourself against these um, people who are going to give you some not so nice feedback, and it's always going to happen. We, you can't avoid it. You can't please all the people all the time. Oh, yeah, that's so true. And then, is that? I mean, I guess that's an important thing to remember too. As I'm somebody giving feedback, that uh, I mean, I, I probably ought to remember that this could be traumatic. This could be a difficult thing for the person I'm trying to communicate with. And I guess that's that's if I care. And I and I really want it to impact them. Then I would. Then they would probably be able to sense that I care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I think um, if you sort of um, uh, prep, if you sort of let them know, you know, what your intention is to begin with. Um, I think that's important. You know, to so people know what your intention is because that that makes. I think that makes a big difference. Absolutely. Uh, one of the things, too, that we're, where we're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, criticism and and kind of negative uh, feedback and, and destructive criticism coming out is in trolling on the Internet, you know, comments mm-hmm. made on your on your pages yeah. or your pictures or things. Talk to us about how mm-hmm. social media and what we should be doing as far as managing criticism that we find online. Yeah, yeah, that one's. That one's tough because uh, it's just making it easier and easier for people to be meaner. Yeah. Because um, you you can hide behind the screen, uh, so you kind of don't have to take responsibility. And as as humans, you know, we we, we sort of most of us have a sense of empathy. And if you're if you're saying somebody something to somebody in person, you kind of you see the reaction, um, and you, you it's a human connection. And I think most of us. The, at, to some extent, um, you care about the impact we're having on another. But when you're behind a screen and you're anonymous and 
you uh, you don't really know who you're talking to or we're kind of dehumanized um, it's it's a lot it's much easier for people to just be to be mean and not um, not really thinking about the impact that they're making on somebody and I think that was that was one of the hardest parts for me when I started writing was thinking about, you know, you're putting yourself out there. You're making yourself vulnerable to, to what people are going to say. And you're almost guaranteed that there's going to be people that are going to be, that are going to say things that aren't very nice and very hurtful things. Yeah. So you, it's, it's hard at first. In fact, in your article, you, and I guess this is a big part of it. Um, you, you suggest that we take a break, make sure we, you, you do take a break from the social media um, and what does the break give you, I guess, just less <laughs> less critical feedback? Um, but there's got to be other benefits to not being so dependent on social media for your self-worth. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, – it's a lot different when you have that human connection. Uh, like I said, you know, if you're behind the screen, um, you're – there's a difference there. Um, so it's, an, it's important to surround yourself with supportive people, with friends, people who care about you, um, and to be to make sure that you're still connected with the real world um, and uh, not get lost in the land of social media where anything goes, pretty it, much. It's so true. And, and maybe talk to your parents, talk to your friends. I mean, actually have a conversation where you can get – more information with people that know more about you, that care more about you, and and more data. Mm-hmm. Is it um, one of the things I, I know that I've read about social media is we tend to, you know, everybody projects their best stuff on social media, um, and so mm-hmm. it, it's kind of a it's it's a convoluted ideal that we, that we tend to see there. Is is it? I when I think of. Um, Comment like I, I rarely comment on people's stuff. I might like like it, put a heart on it, or whatever, and 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 make a you know like a like or a thumbs up or something. But I I worry about it because I know I'm trying to maintain a professional decorum. Um, but there are some people that get their self worth, they get their identity from trying to tear others down. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, it's um, it's sad. And I, you know, that's another way to to kind of deal with it to to think about um, where what this person must be going through. You know, if you have a need to put others down, you you can't be that happy of a person. You can't be um, if you were secure with yourself and you were relatively uh, feeling good about yourself and happy. You you wouldn't have the need to do that. Yeah. Well. So yeah. Kind of being you being grateful that you're. Yeah, being grateful that you're not in that in that situation, and it's hard in the moment. But you know that is one way to think about it to kind of have empathy for the person that's insulting you. It's kind of yeah, just it's sad. It's it's pitiful. Um, let's do this, Allison. We're speaking with Allison Abrams, is a licensed psychotherapist in New York City, where she specializes in depression, self worth, women's health, relationships, and career. She also is a blogger on psychology today. And uh, we will continue the journey talking when we come back about how to be mindful and actually notice when the insults are coming in, uh, you know, so maybe you can then more intentionally do something about it. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We're helping you be the good in the world. 
to respond gracefully to destructive criticism when somebody's giving you feedback you got to uh, you, you got to know how to respond you got to know how to handle it to take it and really how to place it in a context and joining us to talk about that is Allison Abrams she's an LCSWR and is a licensed psychotherapist in New York City and uh, continues to also write for psychologytoday.com a wonderful blog there as well Allison thank you again for your time yeah, thank you for having me. So one of the things you recommended in your article about how to respond gracefully to destructive criticism is be mindful and notice when an ins- insult is actually happening. I guess, are there some people that aren't paying attention <laughs> enough to know that they just were dissed? Yeah, I think especially when it comes from somebody that we know from a friend, um, or cause that, that can happen too, Um and I think it, it could be, especially if you're sensitive to, to criticism, uh, it could be easy to sort of just hear it and take it in as fact um, and not realize that this may not be a fact. This may be coming from not such a great place. Um, and, and if you do kind of take it in as fact and not realize in the moment what's, what's going on, you know, you'll you can start to go down that rabbit hole of feeling bad and continuing the the negative self talk. Um, so it's important to know to learn to be more mindful and know when it's happening at the moment in the moment, so that you can access the skills, your coping skills, to to deal with these things when they happen. Yeah, it really is. It's like yeah, being aware of it so you can catch it earlier. Because we've all kind of had that moment where we're like, hold it. It's like a couple hours later, we started thinking about what they said, and then we're like, that was a diss. Um, one of the things, exactly. and it's interesting, a lot of times that you get the that you get criticized or critiqued, it seems like, is when you're really sticking your neck out there, when you're doing something that you wouldn't normally do, and or maybe that's when you're most sensitive to it. Um, but you make a really interesting point using Theodore Roosevelt's famous speech that it really is the man in the arena that should matter more than the critic that's that's critiquing the man in the arena. Mm-hmm. Exactly, exactly. Um, the man in the arena may you know may be able to help us. Um, maybe you know this may be that type of criticism that we can learn from. Uh, they've earned uh, they've earned that um, that right to be able to you know give us some feedback and maybe help us help us grow. We can all grow. We can all. Uh, improve. Um, and, and, and if we yeah, want, if and, that's it. That's one of your ideas, though, is go to the people that have been in the arena, not just those that critique everyone in the arena. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Because, um, you know, when you do put yourself out there, you're, you're, it's, you're being brave. You're, you're taking a risk. Um, I think not everybody can do that. Not everybody puts themselves out there. And when when you do, it's you know you can be an easy target for people who may be you know, dealing with their own uh, insecurities or maybe their own feelings about not being able to to take risks. And you know there could be 
you know, it's some envy there um, and some other emotions where it, it can be coming from. Um, so that's why it's important to sort of depersonalize it. Yeah, and there really is something too. I guess, and recognizing it's a human, it's a human trait to not love to be criticized. So if you if you feel like you're really sensitive to it, no, you're just probably normal. Um, and then, mm-hmm. but then too, uh, there there are different levels of criticism. One of your points as well is that you should thank them. I mean, and maybe part of this is figuring out a way that you could effectively thank somebody for what they're saying. Um, and, and move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think if somebody really is coming from a negative place and is trying to uh, project their anger onto you, it, it's easy to sort of uh, feed into that. But I think by calmly, you know, hearing it and saying thank you for that, I, you're kind of catching people off guard. Um, you know, they may not expect that. And to sort of to not not fall into that trap of not uh, not feed the fuel. Yeah. Not not turn it into a debate, not turn it into a. Yeah. Because, oh, you want feedback? I'll give you feedback. I mean, really, because it mm-hmm. could turn into a fight and that's not going anywhere. Exactly. Exactly. It's like when um, when kids get bullied, because uh, I used to work with kids a lot, uh, it, you know, one of the one of the things that often works for kids is just ignoring them, ignore the bully, um, as hard as that may be and as simple as it may sound. If you give in, then you're just feeding it, and in a way, that's what they want. Uh, and if you don't, then it's on them. Yeah, they they got to keep the anger. That's so true, isn't it? And is um, I guess to what degree then do you discern uh, what part of the feedback you need to take and and what part you can just shed? Mm-hmm. Well, I think just really analyzing the feedback and you know looking at it and is there any truth to it? Is this an area that you can improve? Um, is this is this something that is going to make you better? That's going to make you. Um, that's going to help you in the long run. Uh, or is this something that is? Is this an attack on you? Is this something that you? You. Is not going to be helpful. Something that you can't change. Um, so to try to, to try to find where where you can find the. Try to find the the helpfulness in the comment if you can. Yeah, if it's there. What what advice, Allison, do you give to people that are thinking they want to give feedback? Um, that and and what 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 should they think through before they decide if they if it's worth giving the feedback or not? Mm-hmm. Well, first, they think maybe not to give unsolicited feedback, uh, but if feedback is asked of you, I think um, you know think about if it was said to you. How would you feel? Would would this be hurtful to you? Uh, would this be helpful? You know, I think that's number one. Um, and and really think about what your intention is. It really be this is where mindful mindfulness comes in, and really being honest with yourself. And is what you're about to say? Are you coming from a place uh, of from a good place? Do you want to help this person, or is this 
coming from somewhere else. So is it going to help them or is it going to hurt them? Yeah. And because that's that's part of the key, right? If I can sense you really care, then then this will make sense. And I mean, I've always heard, too, you could ask for, you know, ask if you would like some feedback or some advice, I guess, Mm -hmm. if 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 before you give it in the end, um, they're only going to take the feedback if it seems like if if it if it's accurate, if they sense that you care and um, really, if they know that you're into them, it, it, it's like relationship is seems like the number one key. What did, what's the one thing, Allison, as we kind of wrap this up, what's the one thing you would suggest overall if if you've received some feedback that you just that just kind of knocked you back on your heels? What's the number one thing that we could all do to, to, to get back on the horse and try the same thing again? I think self-compassion is key taking care of yourself and because it, you know, it could be very easy to get, to get, to feel knocked down and um, yeah, just being compassionate to yourself, uh, reminding yourself that I'm doing the best that I can. Yeah. And back at it again. Well, we appreciate you. Allison Abrams is her name, and you can go uh, find more information about her on Psychology Today. She has a wonderful blog there and is currently practicing in New York City as an LCSW, a licensed uh, psychotherapist. We'll continue the journey here as well. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier, happier lives. It's that time of the show, folks, when we like to go down and visit our good brethren at BYU Sports Nation and find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Spencer and Jerem, hello, gentlemen. Hi, Matt. Hello, Governor. How are you guys doing? Good. My life is always good when I'm eating Swedish fish. Oh, I love how there's, sweet there's it lots is. Of good fish. Yes. The Swedish kind are some of the best. Mm-hmm. Did you notice? Yeah, I'm not as into like the German fish. <laughs> yeah. Or the Spanish fish? No. Me gusta spicy for me. <laughs> this Swedish fish. So, guys, um, uh, any news? Any update on? I, I know we're going to play the game at the at the big uh, Nolan's Bowl. What's the what Super Dome? Super Dome. Super Dome. Dome of Super. <laughs> um, does that does that change the preparation for the Cougars? Do they need to worry about anything they that they weren't worried? Probably need to fly worried? into New Orleans instead of Houston. <laughs> But that's a great point. If no, they fly into Houston, it's going to be a wet landing. We talked about this with Blaine Fowley this week. Honestly, they're playing LSU in a dome in an NFL stadium. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like, the fans aren't going to be on the field that I know of playing. So it's a very similar setup. Yes, it's an hour and a half away from campus instead of five hours. Same state, but... I, BYU has the same challenge uh, ahead of them. Oh, boy. I mean, does this worry you? This this seems scary to me. These guys was, are good. The worry is that it's LSU. Yeah, they're good. More than where it's Yeah, going. right. Yeah. And, you know, they're hungry. Did, LSU didn't play last week, did they? I would say BYU is hungrier. Are they? Because they didn't play yeah. as well on offense. As it is wanted. advantageous for BYU to play LSU in their first game of the season. Mm-hmm. They have a new offensive coordinator. Yeah, maybe. Traditionally, it just takes a game or two or three or six to figure out 
what you going to do on offense? Maybe their signals won't work, right? Maybe 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 they're going to figure out that their their headsets won't work in the stadium and BYU will have an advantage because Well, in all seriousness, first games generally produce more penalties, more mental hiccups yeah. because you're that. getting yeah. ready for the pace of play and BYU experienced it last week against Portland State. See, that's why we are your show opener. That's why our show comes on first, because we experience all of the problems. Yes. <laughs> and then you guys just go and, and flawlessly pull it off. Well, we appreciate that. Yeah. You know, we stand on your shoulders. Yeah, we take it. We're it's taking it for shoulders. you. Hey, by the way, have you seen the baseball field yet? That thing is yeah. looking good. Yes, the baseball field looks immaculate. And it's funny that you bring up baseball, because Mike Littlewood always talks about, don't play the logo on the hat. Or on the jersey. Ooh. Just play baseball. Ooh. That's good. That's great advice. I gotta write that down. Don't play the logo on the hat. You're playing the you're playing the team. You're playing football. Just play football. Yeah. Play football. Speaking of playing football, uh, how do you feel about Sharapova? She comes back with a fury. Oh, Maria Sharapova? You Maria? thought you thought Maria. those were combined. Maria. Sharapova comes in and beats number two seed in um, in uh, what you call it the U.S. Open. Yeah, no, look, she's a polarizing figure in tennis. Is she? Yeah, yeah, she absolutely, is. she is. Wait, she... why? I'm just kidding. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yep. <laughs> she, so it's interesting to watch her come back. I know that she was super emotional. Yeah, like it's it's been a it's been a hard road. She plays her... like I used to. Which means she looks like you used to. Did you? Yeah, Wait, she does. I mean, yeah. What I mean in a good way, yeah. So when I was working in uh, Palm Springs, they have this big tennis tournament. Mm-hmm. It's like the biggest outside of the four majors. So it's like and the fifth major almost. Yeah, it's called the BNP Paribas Open. Anyway, uh, the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, they love exposure, and so they'll let you talk to anybody while you're there. And so, like Maria Sharapova was obviously a headliner. And um, you had to try. Oh, well, no. And she, she she was cool. But it was funny to watch like all of the dudes melt. Yes. All of the guys from the stations just just I got the staring blue, at her. I got the blue goggles on. Blubbering. It's like, just, just ask her a question. She's you play still a good. person. Yeah. She's I'd just a like, human being. I'd be like, Maria, por qué no me The first thought I had was. Wow, you really are tall. Is she tall? Yeah. Oh yeah, she is. I mean, she had flats on, and she's like six one. Let's oh, get her wow. on our intramural team. Yeah, you guys need that. She'd kill it. Yeah, she had, she had flats on, and I had like <laughs> tennis shoes on, and we were eye to eye. And I was Holy like, man, cow. you are tall. Did did the interview go well? I mean, did she? Oh yeah, she was great. Yeah, she was great. I think she uh, is. Uh, she kind of feels out who is interviewing her. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so, you know, she can be a little salty. So she, yeah, so she knew times, yeah, she could but, sense that you were after her. You were going to take her down. Well, no, it just was like, I I don't know. At some point, you get used to interviewing high-profile people. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, it's cool. It's Maria Sharapova, but. But let's get to the real stuff. Let's talk. Let's talk. Oh, man. You've lived the life. How would it be? Hey, um. Oh, yeah, you know, that, uh, that huge paycheck that I wasn't getting in Palm Springs. <laughs> I know. But now look how it's turned out. <laughs> um, what's on your show today, gentlemen? What if? Hmm? What if? Yes. 
BYU beats LSU. I know. That'd be a miracle. We're going to discuss that. Then Ooh. what? What would it mean? Miracle in the bayou. how much does BYU have to lose in this game? Yeah. We'll discuss. Nothing. Okay. Plus, Mo Longy's first interview as a BYU Cougar was with us. We recorded it yesterday. We will play that today. <gasps> what he looked up on YouTube prior to coming to BYU Google. to play football. He Googled to look on YouTube. Yes. Oh. Could have gone straight to YouTube. We didn't tell him that, though. No. Right. And you were his first interview. We were his first interview. As Again, player. congratulations to the professionals who always get it right. Spencer and Jerome. <laughs> Spencer and Jerome are the greatest combo, folks. BYU Sports Nation, it's four and a half minutes away. Four and a half minutes till you can just sit back and get in your easy chair and ride it to heaven. Well, that sounds really hyped up. Ride that bad boy to heaven. Um yeah, Sharapova killed it. I'm I'm really liking tennis a lot lately. And uh, now that my chest cold is gone, uh, we're trying to get our kids in shape to be able to make the tennis team. You really? really? You need to get your kids playing tennis, Jeffrey. We have a tennis court at the park across the street from where okay. we live. Get those girls playing tennis because it's, A, the one of the greatest sports of all time. It's one you can play forever. And it's one that it's a little easier to get your kids – to the level that they can play in high school. It's a, to me, it seems like a sport that's actually doable because I, my kids all – there's only three seniors on my kids' basketball team. So there's hundreds of kids, thousands of kids playing bas- little league basketball. And then by the time they get to high school, there's only three kids that age that are on the team. So that's – your wow. odds are really not very good. But in tennis – you can invest the entire time and bada-boom, bada-bing. Next thing you know, they're Maria Sharapova. Maybe I'll have them aspire to be ball gatherers. Ball girls. Yeah, great idea. Hey, our hero story of the day. Meals and comfortable places to lounge and sleep are among the most coveted amenities when holed up in a shelter after a natural disaster. But a Houston businessman that is covered in the, that, uh, covered in the wake of Hurricane Harvey... While Joel Olstein's megachurch is taking heat for delayed efforts to house the region's displaced, um, the furniture entrepreneur Jim Mattress Mac McInvale is being held as a hero for offering his two, uh, two of his roomy gallery furniture warehouses filled with sofas and beds and chairs as a place for the evacuees to hunker down. Uh, McInvale, uh, who's known for his headline-making promotions, put out the invite on Twitter Sunday night, noting that two sites were open for those in need and offering both shelter and food and a welcome, uh, you know, for the pets as well. And anyway, he he just opened his doors, which is a big deal because that's his inventory, right? So he is the hero of the day, and we appreciate just having you know an entrepreneur that also has the giving spirit, Jim Mattress Mac McInvale. Hero of the Day on the Matt Townsend Show. That's it, folks. We'll be back again tomorrow to uh, help you live longer, love stronger, and lead healthier lives. BYU Sports Nation is up next.